record. <laughs> okay, so the terminology congenital hip dysplasia we no longer use because it's not just found at birth, it actually develops before birth. So this happens in utero. So we no longer use that term, we use the term developmental dysplasia of the hip. Now, you may still hear people talk about congenital hip dysplasia. I went to a pediatric chiropractic course last year and they still use the term congenital hip dysplasia. But it is no longer supposed to be used because it's not correct, okay? So just know that developmental dysplasia of the hip is the what we're supposed to be calling it. Okay, so let's quickly talk about, so this is the normal hip. Um, the hip joint is made up of what articular surfaces? Well, it's a ball and socket, which means it's multi-axial. But what are the articular surfaces? So the head of the femur and the acetabulum. So if you just looked at the bony components of the hip, how stable is it? It's, it's not very stable. So what do we have that's around the acetabulum to deepen it? A labrum. So by the time a labrum gets on, you're covering about 50% of the head of the femur which is not bad, it's fairly good for stability, better than the shoulder, because it has less range of motion than the shoulder does, right, because it's weight-bearing. So when we use the word subluxation, what is the true medical terminology? What does that mean, subluxation? Well, it could be an upslip, could be downslip, could be anterior, could be posterior. When we use the word, what is it? So there's gonna be a term called dislocation which is going to be a full inarticulation of the joint. So for example, this was my hip joint, and I now had my bone like this, my head of the femur like this, or like this, or like this, and there was complete disarticulation of the hip joint, that's a dislocation. So then what's a subluxation? So it's a partial dislocation. Okay, so whenever you hear the word subluxation, it's a partial dislocation, which means some of the articular surfaces are still in contact. So that's important to know the difference between those. So when we talk about developmental dysplasia of the hip, it could be any of these. It could be that the ball is in the socket, but the socket's not properly formed. It could be that the hip is subluxed because the acetabulum is not formed well at all. It could be that there's pretty much no acetabulum, so it's completely dislocated. Any of those could be degrees of developmental dysplasia of the hip, okay? So if this happens in utero, what do you think would be the first way you would notice this? Like when a baby's born? Possibly. You could possibly see a leg length inequality. Anything else? When babies come out of the womb, they're like super like gummy, elastic. Um, so, in fact, actually, if the hip is subluxed or dislocated, they don't want to go into abduction and external rotation. So, in fact, they'll actually be found to have the leg really adducted and sometimes internally rotated. What else can you think of that you might notice? Yeah. Babies, like other than their leg length, they like the actual folds of their yes. legs. That's a big one. So we're going to take a quick look at a picture. Uh, that's a, not that one. Okay. So when we're looking at an infant, because when they're first born, they're not crawling, they're not walking. So you're not seeing any problems with them not wanting to put weight on that hip, right? And ideally, this is going to be diagnosed in the first month of life. 
In the first month of life, they're not doing anything except for laying. So one thing that you can look at is on the affected side, which means the side of the developmental dysplasia of the hip, the gluteal fold is actually going to be higher on the affected side. Okay, so that's one thing to look for. The other thing to look for is most babies are like the Michelin man, right? They've got like the roly-polies and legs. So if you count the number of rolls on one side versus the other, if there's an extra roll, that's usually the affected side. So those are the two things you're going to look at when you're looking at infants, okay? And that's the visual observation. Now, in addition to that, we talked about you may see the leg adducted. You may see it slightly internally rotated. Now... You guys, other than looking at this, is there anything else you guys think you could do? Yeah. Testing. So ideally these tests are done right after birth or at least in the first um, pediatric visit. So hopefully within the first month, someone's done Ordlani and Barlow's test. These are orthopedic tests that are completely within your grasp to be able to do. Chiros can do it, physios can do it, osteopaths can do it, massage therapists can do it. So if you are thinking that one of the children that you have, that let's say you're treating, you're doing baby massage, and you're thinking that you're seeing some of these uneven gluteal folds, you're seeing an extra kind of fold in the medial aspect of the thighs, you can do these tests. So we're going to talk about how to do these tests because... You don't ever learn this in orthopedic assessment. I do think it's important to know. So when you have an infant, I should have brought a doll. I didn't even think about it. When you have an infant, what you're going to do, you're going to lay the infant on their back. Okay, so pretend like the head's over here and the feet are towards you. You're going to take your fingers on the greater trochanter and your thumbs are going to be on the inside of the knee. Okay? So you're going to put the hip into full like 90 degree flexion. And the knees, it doesn't really matter. Usually they're fully flexed because they're like gumbo, right? They're not doing anything. Now, once you have them in this flexed position, what you're going to do is you're going to create abduction. So you're basically going to spread the legs. And while you're spreading the legs, your fingers that are on the greater trochanter, you're going to rotate anteriorly. So basically what you're trying to do is you're trying to pop the head of the femur out of its socket. It's okay. They're, like, they're elastic. It's fine. So once you've done that, if you hear a pop, a click, or like a clunk, that's a positive. It means you just dislocated the hip. Not a big deal. Now, once you've gotten a positive, the other test that you follow it up with, because what does one, one orthopedic test mean? Nothing. So you need a secondary one to be able to follow it up. So you're going to basically relocate the hip. So you're looking for the same thing. You're looking for the clink, the clunk, the noise that happened when you dislocated the hip. So. Same position, infant is laying on their back, heads away from you, feet, you have the hips still in 90 degrees, fingers are in the same direction. So fingers are on the greater trochanter and the thumbs are inside the knee. So you're still going into abduction. And now what you're gonna do is you're gonna traction a little bit and push medially into the greater trochanter. So the idea is you're trying to get that head of the femur to go back into the socket. So again, a positive is if you hear that click, the clunk, the noise, okay, because you just relocated the hip. So in the first few months of life, it's not a big deal. The kids don't feel anything. Everything's elastic and movable, right? It becomes a lot harder and possibly more painful if this test starts to be done when you're getting close to like the crawling stage and the walking stage, so kind of the six month all the way up to a year. But if you're suspecting it, you can certainly do this test. If you're nervous about the test, some people will say, well, if I relocate it, is it possible that I pinch something going back in? Like the joint capsule, for example. Yes, it's possible. So if you're nervous about it, 
then refer it. Ultrasound in the first few months of life, usually we do an ultrasound because is there really any major bone formation? It's mostly cartilage, right? And you don't see cartilage on x-rays. So the first few months of life, you're gonna send them for an ultrasound if you really aren't sure about it. After that, after about month two or three, then you can send them for an x-ray because there's usually enough calcification of the bone that you can see it on x-ray. Okay, so that's important to know. So who gets this? Now that we know what to look for in children, who gets this? Obviously babies. It is the most common issue, developmental issue, that you see in babies. Is that what Yeah, well, apparently. I, I've never actually had a conversation with her, but that's what everyone keeps telling me. <laughs> like, not about that. <laughs> um, so, other than, so who do you think gets it? So it's Jen's daughter that got it, right? Which 85% of the individuals that are affected are females. Don't ask me why, I have no idea. Any other things that you think might make you at risk for having congenital dysplasia or hip, developmental dysplasia at the hip? Would you be more likely to have this if you had a C-section or a natural birth? Um, traumatic birth can lead to this. But in cesareans, you can have a little bit increased risk, but traumatic birth, definitely. Would you more um, common for multiple fetuses? 100%, multiple fetuses. And usually on the first pregnancy, it's most common. Anything else you guys can think about? It can. It's not one of the most common risk factors, but yes, it can. We're going to get to that being one of the common risk factors for other things that we're going to do today. Um, anything else that you guys can think about? Think about when a baby's born and they were all compact in the womb and then they're born. What do people always do to babies? They swaddle them. Right? Everyone always says, swaddle your baby. So you keep them like this, like a mummy, right? And they like it because that's how they were when they were inside which is wonderful to keep them calm and making them feel secure. However, what position did you just put the hip in? Yeah, so if the hips are left in this kind of position, how do you create enough stress on the head of the femur to deepen that socket? Because you can change formation of bone if there's pressure on it, right? Bone lays down bone along the lines of stress. So if the head of the femur is going up into the acetabulum on a 45 degree, you will create and form the acetabulum around the head of the femur. But now if you're like this, how are you creating that depth? You're not. So sure, swaddle babies, but don't swaddle too hard when it comes to the legs and as much as possible when they're not swaddled, you wanna keep them in that externally rotated and flexed position because that's the ideal position to be able to create stress in the center of the acetabulum so that you can help develop that acetabulum around the head of the femur. Okay, so that's really important. <coughs> so knowing that, what would you say if you had a patient come in and say that their child was diagnosed with developmental dysplasia of the hip, what would you recommend to this patient? Well, okay, you can say swaddle, or you can say swaddle, swaddle from the from the ilium up if, if that's a big concern, right? What else could you suggest? I would put them in like the one. Wear them like what? Okay, so because lots of lots of people have the wraps, lots of people have the wraps where the baby kind of lays it on your stomach. 
right? But in that case, the legs are still abducted. So you want to have them kind of on your hip or in your front or on the back, obviously not that young in the first few months, but eventually when they can go on the back. Because if you have them around your abdomen, what's the position? Externally rotated and flexed. So that's the position. You're, you're going to talk to the patients about trying to get them into that position. So carry them more often or put them in a sling or a carrier where, they're, where you're kind of creating that position. Could you like, almost like lay the baby down and like, move her legs in that Wonderful. Position? Well, that's what you're going to do. If you see a kid with developmental dyslexia of the hips, you're going to do passive range of motion for sure because they're not going to want to go into abduction. You're going to notice that. So when you're testing these kids and you're seeing the medial <coughs> fold is higher, you're seeing an extra kind of lump of fat into the medial thigh, you're gonna check for abduction. And when you see or when you feel that the abduction's resisted or restricted, that's not normal in a kid. They're gummy. You can bring their legs all the way behind them, right? So you're gonna create that movement. You're gonna do your passive range of motion. Yeah. When your baby came out, were you just like, can you bring over here and I'll just They took her this? from me. She ended up in NICU. So yeah, so I didn't see her for like the first little while. So no, I didn't. And then when she was NICU, I couldn't. Like we could put her like arms in, but yeah. no, since then, yes, since then, yes. Um, what else should we talk about? Um, oh, yes, that's what I was going to say. Okay, so we always learned way back in the day that one of the things we did, so if a, if a parent came in and told us that their kid has developmental dysplasia of the hip, what we used to recommend is other than doing the range of motion and talking about how to carry them, we always used to say, diaper two or three, put two or three diapers on. And the idea was that if there's so many diapers, you're automatically spreading the legs, right? Because it's huge, bulky. Okay, we don't do that anymore. So like I said, I just took a course on pediatric um, chiropractic and they were still teaching to diaper, but it's actually not advised anymore. So if you hear that, don't suggest it. Um, the reason why is because Let's talk about the word avascular necrosis because we're going to talk about that eventually anyways. Avascular necrosis. If we break down this word, what does that mean? A means no blood, no blood no causing no death. So we started noticing a pattern that kids that we were recommending doing two or three diapers to get that proper position to be able to deepen the acetabulum, what was happening is they were actually getting avascular necrosis of the femur. The head of the femur has how much blood supply? So the head of the femur is like this, right? So if you recall, the head of the femur has this little thing in it. What's that called? What's the notch out of the head of the femur? Fovea capitis. Fovea capitis. Why do you have a hole there? Um, close for blood supply. So do you guys remember that there's a ligament that goes from the acetabulum into the head of the femur? Do you guys remember that? Yes. Yes, you do. And the ligament is called ligamentum capitis, or ligament for the head of the femur. The whole purpose of that ligament, most ligaments are stabilizing ligaments, right? Most of them are going to create stability for joints. What is the function of this one ligament for the head of the femur? To bring the artery in. To bring the artery in. It has zero function and stability. So let's just say now the head of the femur only has one 
option for blood supply. That's it. So if you have developmental dysplasia of the hip or all of a sudden the hip, the femur's not in a proper position, could you compromise that artery? So you double or triple diaper, you don't have control as to how that head of the femur is positioned in the acetabulum. So we started noticing that there was an increased incidence of avascular necrosis, which means the head of the femur is dying because it's not getting blood supply. Not good. So it is not recommended anymore to diaper two or three times. Instead, what we do is you can put them into a Havlick harness. So a Havlick harness is basically going to put them into abduction, external rotation, and flexion, which is the ideal position you want the hips to be in to deepen the acetabular socket. Okay, so that's usually the recommended treatment. In the first month of life, they usually don't do a whole lot. Um, they'll talk to you as the patient, as the parent to do some range of motion and uh, just pay attention to symptoms. But usually after that, if within the first or second month it hasn't resolved, they go take an ultrasound and they still notice that the acetabular fossa is still very um, shallow, then they will get you to um, use this harness. So the harness is gonna be used for three to nine months, depending on how severe the acetabular fossa is not created. So the least amount of time is going to be three months. And literally, they're wearing it all the time. You're taking it off to do diaper changes, but you're putting it right back on. You're taking it off to back, but you're putting it right back on. Okay, so they're basically have it for a minimum of three months, and it can be up to nine months. Now, worst case scenario, if they've tried this, which is usually what they'll try for the first few months of life. So by month six, seven, eight, nine, if they take an x-ray and they notice that the acetabulum is not forming around the head of the femur, then they will go in and do surgery. So they usually don't look at doing surgery until after the first year of life, and usually it's closer to the 18 months. They really do try and do conservative treatments first. The other other thing that you can see is increased lumbar lordosis, but you won't notice that until they start walking. Um, when they start crawling, you'll also notice that the child wants to stay off that side. So it's really quite easy to recognize the symptoms once they're crawling or walking. Not quite as easy to recognize it in the first, usually, that three to six months. That's when you look for the objective signs of the detailed folds and the extra flat folds, and then the range of motion being limited in abduction. How are we doing with it? We're good? Yeah. So if your kid like did have this like later on in life, once like it let's say like formed properly after mm -hmm. would you can have like complications later on in life? Or if it did form properly, usually before age two? No. But if it doesn't Yes, then it will eventually lead to early osteoarthritis, which we're gonna talk about, or genetic joint disease, which we will talk about in the next couple of weeks. Yeah. Sorry, that's right. Flexion. You got it. Yeah. So, say you don't notice these things and you don't have it until much later. How late? I don't know. <laughs> Give me a range. Like if you caught it at either past one or two. Okay. Okay. So if that's the case, I would have to say it would have to be pretty mild because they would have been walking, right? Okay. So did you notice a Trendelenburg gait? Like did you notice that coffee, right? Because the leg lengths are gonna be shorter um, and you're gonna notice that they're gonna kind of walk like this. So if you don't have difficulty walking, if you don't have that waddle gait, if you don't have the Trendelenburg, it's probably pretty minor. And then it wouldn't really be anything. What if it's 
say it's someone who knows these things but doesn't know that that's something that's treatable. And they just let their baby do nothing about it. Yeah, they don't do anything. And then yeah. So um, probably the hip will start to destroy. It could be in early um, late adolescence. It could be early adulthood. But I mean, if you don't have a properly formed acetabulum, then you don't have proper stability of the joint, mm -hmm. which now means your articular surfaces aren't working the way they're supposed to be. So there is going to be a little bit more degeneration quicker. Now. Um, I have patients who will tell me that they just got diagnosed with developmental dysplasia of the hip and they're in their 20s or 30s. How's that possible? Because it was so insignificant that they didn't have any symptoms. But over time, with wear and tear and doing all of their activities and stuff, they started noticing that they had hip pain. With the hip pain, eventually they complained, complained, and complained, and then they got an x ray and they're like, oh, look at that. So you have developmental dysplasia of the hip, but it's not a big deal. Now, it's not a big deal in the sense of you're not going to go in and do surgery for it because obviously it was so minor you would have never caught it. But the problem then is that, again, that's usually the number one reason for getting a total hip replacement early. So before the age of 50, usually people will be getting hip replacements because the joint is degenerating, right? I'm just wondering if you the same thing, retroversion and anteroversion of the femur? Not the same, but this could cause that. So that's basically just an, a rotation, an abnormal rotation of the femur. It could be because the joint capsule, it could be because the acetabulum is malformed. There's lots of reasons for that. But that would be different. Okay. So we're good with developmental dysplasia of the hip. Everybody knows what to look for. Okay, because at some point there's going to be a case about this. So watch them crawl, watch them walk, look for the folds, look for the hyperlordosis. Look for the waddling gait. Look for trying to stay off the affected leg. Look for the Chandelenburg gait because of the unequal leg length. Okay. All right. Muscular dystrophy. Okay. Congenital hip dysplasia is not a genetic disease. Okay. It forms, so it's an acquired disease that forms in utero. So during fetal development. Whereas muscular dystrophy is a congenital inherited disease. That's really important. At some point in this class, I'm going to ask you, which of the following is an inherited or genetic disease? And muscular dystrophy is. We're going to talk mostly about Duchenne's muscular dystrophy. It is really the most common one. There are six different types, I believe. But this is usually the one that gets um, the most recognition because it is the most common. So we need to know that this is an X-linked genetic disease. Okay. So what does that mean? A mother gives what chromosomes? Okay, so a female has two Xs. So let's say a female had a bad X, meaning an X with muscular dystrophy, okay, Duchenne's, and then a regular X, no problem, okay? And then she married a man that had a normal X, so no issues, no genetic issues, and a normal Y. In this case, what would happen? So the mother can give an X to the child, a normal X, right? And the father can give a normal X. 
So the female here is going to be fine. Okay, now the female, the mother, can give the genetic abnormality and the father can give a normal X. So now in this case, so we call this a carrier. And the reason we call this a carrier is because you have a bad gene, but you have a good gene. So you actually don't have the symptoms because you're not fully expressing the issues because you have a good gene. Okay, so females are carriers for muscular dystrophy. All right, so now let's say the mother gives a good X and then the father gives a Y. So here we have a boy and totally normal. Okay, other option is mother can give the genetic abnormality and then father gives the X. So here we have a boy with muscular dystrophy. So not only do you need to know that it's an X-linked disease, but who expresses the disease? Males. Boys. This is almost exclusively a disease of boys. When we're talking about expressing the disease. Females will carry the bad gene, but they don't have any physical issues. Question? So it's usually if, if the parents have a girl, they have 50% chance of a girl being a carrier. And if the parents have a boy and one of the parents has the disease, then they have a 50% chance of having a boy with muscular dystrophy. But that guy with muscular dystrophy and like that female, if they had a kid together and they gave the two X's, then they would have it. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So one of the things with I see where you're going. One of the things with muscular dystrophy is it can affect um, muscles, libido, um, which can affect sterility. So yes, men can pass on the bad X. If you have muscular dystrophy, it's just recently that these people are living past the age of 20. So a lot of these people used to die in their like late childhood to early teens. But with the new advances in medications and stuff, they're living to 20, 30, 40. So could a male with muscular dystrophy reproduce? Yes, it's not super likely. It is much more common for the female to not even know she's a carrier and then all of a sudden have a child with muscular dystrophy, okay? So we need to know that this is a disease that affects almost exclusively boys, hint, hint. Okay. So these are all the different types of muscular dystrophy. So Becker's is basically the exact same as Duchenne's, it's just not as progressive. I don't care if you remember that. Facioscapulohumeral muscular dystrophy. It tells you. <laughs> so it tells you what's being affected. The fascial areas of the scapulohumeral so it's upper girdle, shoulder girdle, and upper limbs typically, most commonly. It can affect the face a little bit. Limb girdle is going to usually be trunk, so shoulder, hips, and then it can affect the upper arms and the thighs, which is going to be very similar to Duchenne's. Myotonic dystrophy, 
What do you think of when you hear the word myotonic? Myo means what? Muscle. Muscle. And tonic usually means tone. So in this case, when you have myotonic muscular dystrophy, the tone of your muscles is hugely increased. That's one of the major issues. And so spasms and tetany are very, very, very frequent and common. Um, and then muscular dystrophy congenita, it's the most severe one, and you may not live past a few years of life because it will eventually affect the respiratory system and it can affect the cardiovascular system as well. So congenita is not usually one that you will see because these kids usually don't survive past a few years. So let's talk about muscular uh, dystrophies because that's the one that we're going to be talking about because um, if you do see muscular dystrophy, chances are it's the one you're going to see. So. Let's go back to this for a second. So what do you see in Duchenne's muscular dystrophy? What area is it mostly affected? So shoulders, upper arms, pelvis, and thighs. Okay. Now last semester, did you guys learn a condition called polymyositis? <gasps> Tell me about it. I was afraid, because that's an autoimmune disease, which means it would have been under immunology, which should have been taught with SLE and chronic fatigue and fibromyalgia. So I had assumed that you hadn't caught it, taught it. But okay, so what, what do you know about this disease? Break it down. Poly means many, myo, muscle, and then itis. Okay, so many muscles basically present with inflammation. That's not actually what's happening. It's not really true inflammation that's occurring, but the immune system is basically attacking your muscles. Where most commonly are they attacking? Yeah, so shoulder and hip girdles. Duchenne's, what does it primarily affect? Shoulder and hip girdles, okay. Duchenne's, you're born with this. This is a genetic inherited disease, okay? So you can't stop, and it's progressive. So you can't stop it. There's no cure for it. And usually by the age of three, four, five, six, you have significant symptoms. If you have Duchenne's muscular dystrophy, you will have symptoms usually in the first few years of life. And then usually by age 10, 11, 12, you will be pretty much in a wheelchair. You will need support or assistance to be able to move around. So that's going to be very different than polymyositis. Who gets this? Who gets polymyositis? More common in women, much more common in women. And what age does this usually start to show? Yeah, so it's usually after the age of 20 is when you start to show signs and symptoms. And this is an autoimmune disease. It usually starts with either the shoulders or the pelvis, and it is a bilateral issue. So, can you see how polymyositis and Duchenne's do have some similarities, but they are very different. If someone's coming to you in their 20s, chances are they don't have Duchenne's. Because in their 20s, they wouldn't be walking. Right? Are they a male or a female? Because if it's a male, then you might be thinking some kind of muscular dystrophy. If it's a female, that might be at the top of my list. So it's really important to know your differential diagnoses because you can usually figure out by gender, age, and then characteristics what disease it is most likely. So 
I'm glad you guys remembered that one. Okay, so that could be a differential diagnosis, not really, but it could be worst case scenario if for some reason Duchenne's was really mild, which it typically is not. Okay, so we need to know about the manifestations. So in the first few years of life, so we're talking about like two, three, four, five, six, these kids are gonna start to develop symptoms. What are the symptoms going to be? Muscular dystrophy is a genetic issue with the dystrophin gene, which means the muscles are not able to form and contract properly. So what does this look like? If there's a muscular issue, it's a neuromuscular issue, what does this look like? Okay, so in fact, I like what you're thinking on that, but in fact, these people actually have hypertrophied calves, most commonly. It could be the whole lower limb, but most commonly it's hypertrophied calves. So let me ask you a question. How are the calves larger? If the muscles are not being used, But they usually end up in a wheelchair by age like 10, 11, 12. When you say hypertrophy, hypertrophy means what? Enlargement. But the thing is, it's not actual the muscle strength and girth that's enlarging. It's fat deposit. So it can be very um, misleading when you see lower limbs, primarily calves, but lower limbs that are actually quite meaty. You would think, oh, they've got to be pretty strong. But in fact, they're not. Okay, it's fat deposits. So that is a really, really big sign of muscular dystrophy, is that the lower limbs, primarily the calves, become hypertrophied, but that is mostly fat. So let's talk about other things. So are they gonna be weak in their shoulders and weak in their pelvic? Okay, so now I'm six, seven, eight, nine months old and I'm trying to sit. Can I, can I get from a laying to a sitting position? I need my hips. So they have a hard time with that. Once they get into a seated position, they're fine. They can hold that position. What about when they start crawling? Now they've got the movement of the hips to be able to crawl. What about the reaching with the arms? You're gonna start to notice these things. What about when they start walking? How's their gait gonna be? It's gonna be really, really wide gait. So again, a really big waddling gait. They're gonna have Trendelenburg. We call it compensatory Trendelenburg gait. Why? What is a true Trendelenburg gait? So it's a neurological issue and glute meds not being innervated, which means that the hip sticks out, right? Because the glute med on this side is not being contracted to keep it in. But in this case, it has nothing to do with glute med being an issue. It's compensated because the muscles themselves aren't strong enough. So in fact, you'll usually see these kids walking around like this because the muscles are super, super weak. So you'll see a compensated Trendelenburg gait. What about going up and down stairs? They're gonna have a really hard time. So when you see a two, three-year-old that's having a hard time walking, they're very clumsy, they're falling a lot, they're having a hard time with stairs, they're having a hard time changing positions, that's what you want to refer out, okay? Because if they're not hitting their milestones or they're hitting them really, really late, there's a problem. So um, some parents will just think that their kids are a little bit delayed and slower, which is fine, they could be. Um, but that's when you're going to start asking questions and you're going to start hopefully making them aware of what to look for. And if they're aware and looking for those things, then you're going to recommend a referral, right? 
So this is something you will probably see at some point. I've only ever seen one patient with muscular dystrophy, but it is probably something you will see at some point. So please know your symptoms for muscular dystrophy. The rest of them I'm not too concerned about because Duchenne's is going to be the one that you're usually going to see if you see any of them. So generally speaking, any X-linked genetic disease is going to show up in that? Um, I'm going to say yes, except we're going to talk about hemophilia, for example, which is an excellent genetic disease. Uh, you guys did not do that last semester, right? Okay, so yeah, I'm going to cover it. Um, and females can have symptoms, they're just way less aggressive than the males. So they can still, even though they're a carrier with hemophilia, they can still have some symptoms. In this case, they usually don't have any symptoms. So yes, the males are usually much more affected. Correct. Okay. Um, so, the other thing to note, because we're going to be doing spinal muscular atrophy right after this. Kids with Duchenne's will usually be, not all of them, but it's common that they'll usually be intellectually delayed as well. They could not, you may not notice a difference until they get into being into their teens. But that is something that differentiates spinal muscular atrophy to Duchenne's muscular dystrophy. Muscular dystrophy usually has an intellectual deficit. whereas Spinal muscular dystrophy or atrophy doesn't. No idea. They'll both have GI disease, diseases and respiratory issues as well. So these kids could end up on a G, GI feeding tube and they could end up on oxygen. Usually doesn't happen until they get into their 20s. But we should have an idea about all of that. So let me ask you, someone comes in with muscular dystrophy, what do you do? I can't touch you because I can't heal you. What do you do? So these kids are probably, depending if you see them by the time they're wheelchair bound, they're in their wheelchairs all the time. They go from bed to a wheelchair all day and into bed. So getting them off of their glutes is a really good idea because bed sores are a big issue, right? Decubitus ulcers and they're gonna be seated or two times. So you want to try and avoid that. So yes, passive range of motion, I would agree with anything else. And it's, it's not that their muscles don't work at all, right? They're super weak. Could you do isometric? Wonderful. Could you do active assistant? They may not be able to do active. So you're going to do active assisted. Do you want to try and encourage some strength? Yes. 100%, 100%. And so passive range of motion is great just to be able to lubricate that joint and get the muscles into a normal stretch position because they will usually get contractures, right? Being in the same position all the time. But ideally, you want to get these people to move as actively as possible. Are you ever going to get them to regain strength to walk? No, that's not your goal. Your goal is to get them as strong as possible so that they remain as independent as possible for as long as possible, right? Anything else you want to do? So you're going to do passive range of motion, you're going to do some active assisted, you may do some isometrics or some concentric isotonics, strengthening, anything else? Perfect, yep, anything else? General sure, you can do some general relaxation. So stimulating, why would you, where would you do stimulating and why would you do stimulating? Okay, yep, I can see that. Yep, okay. Anything else? Anywhere else you might want to do maybe some topotement? 
So the diaphragm's, oh no, the diaphragm's skeletal muscle, so it's not working very well. So their breathing may start to get affected, which also means their ability to cough may be affected. So if you're starting to hear a lot of phlegm and crackles and things like that, you may want to do what? Yeah, to potent. You can do some hacking, you can do some pounding. Obviously, you're not going to go crazy, but you're going to do some. Um, and in what position do you want them in? Do you want them seated when you're doing this? They can be, but what's the ideal position? So postural drainage. The ideal position for postural drainage is you're going to have a triangle. Their head's going to be in a hole, so their head's here. They're, I don't know. And then their feet, their feet are here. I can't draw. But you get the idea. So in postural drainage, the idea is that as you, as you are doing the tapotment to the thoracics, it's also promoting the ability for anything to get out, right? Okay. Um, anything else you want to do for them? Is there any education you want to give them? DDB, wonderful, right? Because Again, that's going to activate diaphragms and all the accessory muscles of respiration. So stretching it might be tough because they may not have a lot of mobility by the oh, so time you see them. So they may need an aid with that. So teaching if they've got someone coming to the house, a care worker, for example, teaching them on how to do it, right? Teaching them about changing positions, ideally every couple of hours, two, three hours at the max, you want to change the position. So again, you'd have to look at the patient. If they are having a lot of weakness in the upper limb, they may not be able to. So you may want to talk to them about just even doing squeezing exercises, getting them to do dexterity type of exercises so that they can still maintain the use of their hands. So depending on where they're at, you're going to take that and try to improve it or at least keep them at that baseline so that they don't completely de decline. Great. Wonderful. Yep. So yeah, Gibson's technique where you contract and relax and contract and relax. Yeah, wonderful. Okay, so this is something you can treat. Is it something you're going to fix or cure? There is no cure. There is no fixing this. This is a progressive neuromuscular genetic disease. It's progressive. That's important to know. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about how this gets diagnosed. Once you start to see symptoms or the kid's not hitting the milestones, hopefully they'll get referred out to back to the GP or the pediatrician. And then hopefully, if they're not hitting their milestones, they'll then get referred out to a neurologist. And the neurologist will usually do an EMG, which basically means they put a needle into the muscle and they stimulate that muscle to see does it contract. So upon stimulation, does that muscle work properly? So usually in this case, it won't contract properly. So you'll start to see that the EMG is going to be quite low. After you've done that, you can do a muscle biopsy, which basically means they take a piece of the muscle out and they actually look at it underneath the microscope. Neither of those are very comfortable, but it is kind of necessary to make the true diagnosis. Blood work is also really important, so creatine phosphate is going to be um, a protein that you'll actually find when the muscles start to break down, you usually find CK in blood work. So all of those things together with the presentation and the history is usually how you can diagnose muscular dystrophy. Now, typically, could you ask 
the, let's say it was a child that came in and you were thinking it might be muscular dystrophy, what would you ask the parents? Okay, other than the current like, patient that you're dealing with right now, do you want to ask any other questions about anybody else in the family? And I'll tell you that 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago, this wasn't really well diagnosed and these kids were usually dying in their teens. So sometimes they'll say, oh yeah, my sister's baby died when he was a teenager, but we don't know why. Was it a girl or a boy? It was a boy. So ask questions because they may not know what the diagnosis is at all, but usually if there's been an early death and they notice that there is some physical decay in the individual, you can usually start to get an idea that you might want to put this at the top of your list. Okay. So we will watch a movie. No tears because it almost makes me cry every time. Yeah. Harrison was born in July 2006, and I remember the day like it was yesterday. The world seemed to be full of opportunity. I could imagine life ahead with, with Harrison, everything he was going to do. I was imagining 20 years from now, 30 years from now, 40 years from now being a, being a grandpa, or even a great-grandpa. He is <laughs> very determined, very cheeky, very fun, very loving. He's a stubborn, determined old man. But he gets the great coupling of being able to have a vivacious, outgoing, gregarious, uh, lovely personality. He's the, uh, he's the boy in the playground that will go up to anybody and say, excuse me, I want to talk to you. And we noticed something was wrong. Um, when he started to walk, or try to walk, he would go from piece to piece, or from chair to sofa, when he was cruising around. and. Uh, He'd fall over, and when he fell over, he wouldn't save himself. And then, it, yeah, it's just nursery said, well, you know, he's been here a while, he's still, he's still bumping into things, he's falling down a lot. So we found out about Harrison having Duchenne muscular dystrophy on January 25th, 2011. Um, never going to forget that day. Uh, we let so he was born in 2006, diagnosed in 2011, age five. That's typical. They're usually diagnosed, like I said, age three, four, five, six. So that is very, very typical. The doctor's room, doctor's consulting room, and walked out into the corridor with Harrison, numb, just plain numb, looking at each other thinking, crikey, how on earth has this happened? Didn't want to believe it, um, you know, not kind of, not to my little boy, really, I guess. Duchenne is a progressive disease. Um, it affects every single muscle, skeletal muscle in the body. 
and most boys would share them in a wheelchair by the time they're 10, between 10 and 12. Um, that moves on to a, a motorised wheelchair, electric wheelchair, with generally being almost fully paralysed by the time they're uh, 17 or 18, um, needing 24 hour care, and in the end, uh, the heart being a muscle as well is the is the bit that gets them. It's the it's, it's the one that kills them. At the moment, it's 100% fatal. There's no treatment. There's no cure. And we are determined to find a cure. So we've started a charity. It's called Harrison's Fund. We launched it on January the 1st this year, 2012. Um, and we have one goal, and that's to raise as much money as we can and to give it to the researchers who... The rest of it is advertising for them. Okay, another one that's a sad one. Spinal muscular atrophy. Okay, so. In the spinal cord, we have gray matter. So if this is going to be posterior and this is going to be anterior, what do we have right here? The posterior gray horn, right? What goes into the posterior gray horn? What kind of information? Sensory, also known as afferent, right? And then we would have this, which is called what? It's coming down. The anterior gray horn. And what kind of information leaves the anterior gray horn? Motor. Okay. So, with spinal muscular atrophy, the anterior gray horn is affected. So the spinal motor neurons are affected. So if you know that, what do you expect to see in someone that has spinal muscular atrophy? So it's going to be an issue with skeletal muscle. There will also be some visceral issues, primarily GI. Um, if you remember, in the mouth, everything is skeletal muscle. In the esophagus, the upper part of the esophagus, the top third is skeletal. The middle is half and half. So these people will have issues with digestion and also with um, deglutition or swallowing because of the skeletal muscle issue. So we need to know a spinal muscular atrophy, this spinal motor neuron is the one that's affected okay so it's the anterior gray horn of the spinal cord that is affected this is also a genetic inherited disease it is also a progressive disease that does not have any cure they have come out with some new medications. Speranza was one of them that came out, I want to say maybe five or eight years ago, and they thought it was the complete cure, and they realized it's only helping certain individuals. It's not helping everybody with spinal muscular atrophy. So with Duchenne's, the, class, the presentation is pretty classic, meaning that usually in early 
childhood, you're starting to lose motor function, strength and tone. By the time you're getting into your preteens, you've pretty much lost a lot of significant, especially lower motor function. Spinal muscular atrophy can vary. Some people will have no symptoms until they're in their 20s and they'll just have very minor symptoms. And some kids can die within the first three to four months because they can't swallow because there's no sucking. So with spinal muscular atrophy, there's a huge range in the disease. Whereas with muscular dystrophy, it's pretty consistent. Okay, there isn't a lot of variation. So we need to know this is a progressive disease that affects the spinal cord and it's the anterior gray horn that it's going to affect. The um, spinal motor neuron is going to be the one that's going to be affected. So we have different types. Type 1 is usually the most aggressive type. Um, it's usually the one that's going to cause death within, within usually the first year of life. Um, so these kids usually have a difficulty in respiration and feeding and swallowing. So because of the GI issues and the respiratory issues, they usually don't survive for very long. Type 2 is kind of moderate and type 3 usually you don't find out until you're an adult. So you don't really have a lot of motor neuron issues. Okay, so atrophy is going to be the big one, which makes sense because if your anterior gray horn is affected, that means you don't have any information going to the muscles. If the muscles aren't contracting, are they being used? If they're not being used, they're just going to atrophy, right? So these individuals will usually have very low muscle tone and very low muscle development. Secondary to that, what can, you, what can be caused? So if I, if I have really weak erectors, for example. Scoliosis is classic with this. Um, often as well, these individuals will have a hard time when if it isn't type 1, if it is type 2, you'll usually start to notice these kids will have a hard time feeding themselves. So by the time they get to six months, a year, year and a half, they're having a hard time bringing food to their mouth. So even just that kind of action will be really difficult for them. There is no cognitive issue. No cognitive issue. Muscular dystrophy has cognitive impairment typically. So that is a one very, very big difference. So we already talked about type 1. You're not going to survive very long. Um, type 2, so usually before the age of 2, you're going to start to see symptoms. So walking is going to be um, impaired. So you're still going to have your trendelenburgulate. You're still going to have your waddling gait. You're going to have difficulty with changing positions, going up and down stairs. Um, feeding is usually an issue. But Type three, usually you don't start to see symptoms until you're in childhood and they're so minor that it's not usually diagnosed until you're in adulthood. So you can survive with that for a very, very, very long time. Okay, so if you want any type, it's type three. Um, Type one, yes. Type two, you can you can live. Um, it would be like muscular dystrophy, right? You would have a motorized wheelchair. You would have a GI feeding tube. You'd probably have an oxygen tank. Usually, by the time you're in your 20s, maybe even in your teens. Um, but you can live into your 20s, 30s, and 40s if you've got type two. Type three, 50s, 60s, you're good. So it's the exact same testing that they would do. So they're looking at your history and physical exam. And really, when you're looking at a child that's you know six months, seven months, eight months, nine months, 10 months, it's really hard to differentiate between spinal muscular atrophy and muscular, Duchenne, muscular dystrophy, Duchenne's muscular dystrophy. You don't know at that point what the difference is until you do a muscle biopsy. Will the muscle be fine in a muscle biopsy with spinal muscular atrophy? The muscle's fine. 
With Duchenne's, there is a problem with the dystrophin receptor. So under a microscope with a biopsy, you'll be able to see. If you did an EMG, so you poked the muscle with a needle and you stimulated it, would the muscle contract? Yeah, the problem is that there's no stimulation coming from the spinal cord. So the testing is really important to differentiate between Duchenne's and spinal muscular atrophy. It's basically like you're paralyzed, yes. Yeah, it's getting worse and worse and worse. Absolutely. Whoops. Um, so, what would you do for these individuals? Same thing as you would do for, for Duchenne's muscular dystrophy. Your job as a physical therapist is to do what? Keep them moving as much as possible. Are you going to stop the disease? Are you going to stop the progression of the disease? But are you going to try and slow it down? You're going to do your best to maintain muscle health and muscle strength for as long as possible. Again, your whole goal is to keep these individuals independent. Okay. Now, if one came in that was a type 3, they'd be walking and working and doing all the regular daily things in their 20s. So at that point, what do you want to do for them? Is passive range of motion the best technique to do for someone that's type 3, for example? So what are you going to You're going to be more aggressive, so you're going to do a lot more strengthening. You're going to do a lot more active. You might do a little bit more of stimulating type stuff, right? You're going to be more aggressive with a type 3 because their function is going to be more significant. Whereas with a type 2, they're going to be very limited. So even just changing the positions is significant. Getting them to try and, if they're able to use their upper limbs, to grab something to be able to turn them into positions. To try and lift their legs if they can. Try and teach them how to feed again or bring their arms up. So you're exercises and education will be a little bit different depending on the type that you get. So the major issue, just like with Duchenne's, is the respiratory issue, which eventually, if your lungs aren't working, your heart gets overloaded, right? Because the heart wants to work way harder to get oxygen to where it needs to go. So eventually, the heart's going to say, I'm done, right? And that could be in your 20s or in your 30s because it's had to work so hard to get the little bit of oxygen that it is getting out into the body. So that's usually what will cause these individuals. It'll either be respiratory failure or it'll be cardiovascular issues because of the respiratory issues, most commonly. So we're gonna look at the big, there's such a big variation in individuals with spinal muscular atrophy and you're gonna see that in this video. It's been 31 years since I've been diagnosed with SMA and a lot of things have changed. Kids that were given days to live have lived for years. They told us two years was her life expectancy. Stella's six years old now. So Stella currently wants to be an artist, but that changes on a daily basis. She also wants to be a dancer. She wants to be a singer, all sorts of things. The favorite thing is I like to read to Stella, and she likes to read to me because she's quite advanced for her age in reading, and we like to challenge each other with arithmetic questions. A lot of friends will ask questions, but at the same time, a lot of them try not to ask questions, and it's kind of nice because they make it seem like you're not different at all. Well, I stole her best friend in grade four, so we actually started talking in grade seven because 
we were the only ones with phones. When we hang out, like, I obviously always have to, like, constantly be with her and, like, help her out. But it's never stopped us from being friends. I don't let it affect me at all, really. It's just really amazing to see the progress that these clinical trials have had. So that gives you a lot of hope that they're very close. A cure for me would mean everything. To see Stella grow up. So you can see the significant atrophy in her legs. Life would be wonderful. We've kind of thought, like, for our generation, like, a cure for Sydney wouldn't mean, like, oh, she's going to be, like, around walking, really. It's more like she'll be stronger to, like, be more awake for the day. At this point in my life, I don't really think treatments are, like, the best option for me. As long as she's happy with what matters. And with new technologies and medicines, they've even been able to take their first steps, you know? Now there's hope. Hope? is something that you live with every day. You're always hoping that something will come along to make her life easier or better. I think what gives me hope is that there will hopefully be a cure in Stella's lifetime and that other families who are newly diagnosed uh, won't be so fearful of the diagnosis in the future. Now there's hope that they actually will have a cure within my lifetime, something I never expected. When I'm older, I hope to be able to live on my own and depend on myself for an income and be able to move around myself and not depend on somebody else to lift me. There's always hope. Don't ever give up. You never give up. Thank you for giving us hope. For a future without SMA. Thank you for giving us hope. Thank, Thank you for giving... So there is a big variation in um, between some of the kids that by the time they're one, they're already in um, motor wheelchairs. Um, meanwhile, you have some individuals that are in their 20s and 30s that are still able to move their upper limbs. So that's significant. So there is a big range, but it is progressive and it is um, deadly. At some point, you will die from the disease. Isn't pathology uplifting? Okay. All right, let's talk about torticollis. So, what does the word torticollis mean? What does collis already mean? Like longus coli means it's long and it's along the neck. So, tort, twisted, coli, neck. So, everybody, I would like you to contract your right sternocleidomastoid. So if you contract your right sternocleidomastoid, how is your head? So your head is laterally flexed to the right, and it is rotated to the left. So you are ipsilaterally laterally flexed and contralaterally rotated. Does everybody agree with this? Yeah. This is torticollis. <laughs> are you stuck in this position? Do you walk around like this? Okay, well then, yes, you may have torticollis. If you are not stuck in that position, then you do not have torticollis. So, torticollis is something you are born with. It is congenital. There can be lots of reasons for it. Most commonly is idiopathic. We don't really know why it happens. We think that it happens because of a traumatic birth or because of your position in utero. Because if you were like this for the last three or four months in utero, how are you gonna come out? 
like this? And are you going to want to move to this? No. Yeah. All types of torticollis, because like there's like the three types. Are they all the No. No. You can have um, develop. You can have acquired, congenitally acquired torticollis. So, for example, um, if you're Oh, that's going to be this. Hold on. When we're talking about torticollis, it is truly something you are born with. There's going to be an acquired torticollis, which is going to be different. But we're, when we talk about just torticollis, it means you are born with this. So you usually see this in infants. So you come out? Like... You, you come out, or within the first few days, you're like this. Oh. Yes. How would you even give birth to Well, if you think about it, you're supposed to be head up anyways. So you would just be a little rotated. Like, like, shoulder, like, head, okay, but kids are really elastic. Even though the SCM is completely contracted, there is elastic movement in there, right? Don't forget that. It's just that they don't want to go out of that position because it's uncomfortable. But you could get them out of that position. I'm going to tell you right now, you're going to cause the kid to cry, but that's what we're going to do. So torticollis is something you're born with. So you're, yeah, unfortunately, you are going to do that. But... You will see this in infants. So could you be born, for example, with uh, malformed vertebrae that would cause you to have your head in that position? It is possible, not all that common. The most common cause is caused by a spasmodic SCM, and most commonly it's because of a traumatic birth or because of your position in utero, okay? So knowing that, I had a patient contact me and say, my daughter got hurt at school today, I need you to see her. I couldn't get her in until a couple of days later. So anyway, she ended up going to a physio and I saw her a couple of days later after she saw the physio. And the physio diagnosed her with traumatic torticollis. So my question to her was, when did this happen? She's 13. So it happened over the weekend. Okay, was she born with it? It's not true torticollis. But she's in this position and she's stuck in this position. So because of the position, we call it Rhineck or torticollis. But it's acquired or was developed after birth. Okay? So that's why we say it's an acquired or traumatic torticollis. So in adulthood or in teenage or if you get this when you're older, that's what you're looking at. It's not a true torticollis. We just call it torticollis because of the head position. All right. So... If you know that this is caused by a spasmodic sternocleidomastoid, so you're seeing this kid when they're two weeks old, what are you doing? So you're going to stretch that sternocleidomastoid. Agreed. What else are you going to do? Okay, so they're two weeks old. How are you going to teach them to strengthen? You can do some GTO. You can do some muscle approximation to the affected side. Not Yes, yes, but not what we would do. What would we do? It will all help. We'll talk about that in a second. You could stimulate the opposing side 100%. Yep, you could do O and I. Okay, so you're going to see this kid and do all these techniques for maybe 20, 30 minutes. If you're lucky, you might not get that much time with the chewy gold. The parent, that is your key. You're going to see the kid how often? 
if it's true torticollis, they'll usually have physio or chiro or massage or whatever a couple of times a week. I mean, it gets expensive, right? If you could do it every day, that would be wonderful. But guess who's with the kid all the time? Dad. The parent, whoever the parent is. So you're going to educate the parent. The most important thing in this is to educate the patient, the parent, because they can do this all day, every day. So you talked about feeding. So you're going to get them to feed in a position where they're getting them out of that head position. You're going to tell the parents when they come to the crib to place the child so that when they're talking to them or they're moving things or they've got lights, kids love lights. So make lights and force them to look towards that. So you're, everything that you're going to do is you're going to stimulate them away from the side of the torticollis. You can teach them how to do some massage. We teach our patients how to do baby massage, right? So you can certainly teach them how to do some massages. I can tell you parents usually aren't very comfortable <coughs> on massaging their newborns or doing any kind of neck work. But you can teach them about positioning and about getting that, stu or that student, getting that child out of that position with activation, attention, voices, noises, bright lights, all that kind of stuff. All the time. Yeah, so if I'm like this, you're going to get them to actually put the lights over here so that I want you want that child to do this, right? So you're, you can't really deal with the rotation and the, and the um, lateral flexion at the same time. These, they don't understand, right? So you're usually going to deal with one. So you're either going to deal with the rotation or you're going to deal with the lateral flexion. So oftentimes the lateral flexion is the easiest to go to the opposite side, right? Um, if you go to the same side, you're just encouraging that lateral flexion for the rotation. So we usually focus on doing ipsilateral lateral rotation to the opposite side. So that is your most important job, is to educate the, pa the parent because they are with them 24-7. Really important. So when I ask you guys, what conditions would be caused by a traumatic birth? Torticollis would be a really, really, really good one. There's going to be some more that we're going to talk about today. Okay. Uh, they believe it's genetic, but we don't really know. So if I wouldn't ask you an etiology in this case, because we really don't know. Okay. We do believe that a risk factor is traumatic birth, but we don't really know what truly causes it. And then, of course, being in that environment in utero, being in that position in utero is a really big issue as well. And then any cervical or vertebral abnormalities, those are usually the main risk factors that would cause it. So, what is SCM? What is the right SCM if I'm in this position? What's it going to feel like on these infants? Have you ever felt an infant? They're mushy! All of a sudden, you're going to feel this nodule. You're going to feel a little bit of a, a lump and a hardness in the sternocleidomastoid. That's going to be one of your first, cue, your first clues. What else? What else are you going to notice? The head position, that's going to be your giveaway, right? What questions do you want to ask the parent? Okay, so how old are they and, and have they been like this since birth or was it something that came on a couple of days later? Anything else? I just have a question. Okay. About, so when, when you're saying that the hip dysplasia is acquired, but it's mm. not congenital, but this is congenital, how, why, how, okay. how is that different? So it's not congenital because it doesn't just occur at birth. I could take an ultrasound of a fetus and see my developmental dysplasia of the hip. Okay. Congenital means it's not seen until birth. Okay. Okay. I have a okay. I got 
Okay. Okay. Yep. Okay, we'll come back to that. Um, and I don't remember what I said either. Why? What questions would you ask? Oh, yeah, what questions would you ask a parent? Yeah. How did they deliver? Were they, was it a cesarean? Was it natural birth? If it was natural birth, did they use forceps? Did they use a vacuum? Um, how long was the birth? Was there any issues with the infant when they came out? Were they breech? All those kinds of questions give you an indication if it was a traumatic birth, it could be possibly torticollis, right? So you should always, especially when you're dealing with a relatively newborn or a baby, always ask about the birth because that gives you a lot of information. Okay, so we talked a little bit about the treatment, right? You're not gonna, nobody's gonna send a two month old in to go get surgery, right? It makes sense to do conservative treatment. So get physio, get massage, get chiro, whatever you want, or an osteopath, whoever you want to go see, and educate the patients, the parents, to be able to get the patient or this, the kid out of that position. If it doesn't work, so we're talking about like three, four, five, six, seven months now that the kids still got a torticollis and conservative treatment is not working. What is the problem with being stuck in this position as the child is growing? So the, are the bones gonna properly form? The bones are cartilage essentially. So is there going to be a proper matrix and calcification of the bones equally? So now you're setting them up for, being, for having some spinal issues. So usually once we get to that like three, four, five month range and conservative treatment has not been working, they may look at doing some injections or even doing um, some surgery, which basically means they would cut the tendon, lengthen it, and then reattach it. But that would be worst case scenario, right? We always use conservative treatments first. I will tell you right now, you will see somebody with congenital torticollis, 100%. I've treated two kids already with torticollis, so it's not uncommon especially because you're going to be treating males and females that are having babies and they're going to come and they're going to spill their guts out to you because they're exhausted and they're stressed and that's what people do when they're on the table they talk to you so eventually they may bring in this child to you and you may start treating them so you will probably see this at some point in your treatment career if you had like a kid with torticollis and then you could correct it immediately like with like stretching and everything else is it possible that when they grow up that they can go back like like the muscle memory um, I haven't seen any research to say that and anybody that has kind of developed so traumatic go ahead this is really common in infants it is the most common in infants and then you have yes you can develop a kind of spasm in sternocleidomastoid and for in this instance the little like the girl that came to see me that was 12 she said that it was because of all the jumps she did in, in skiing and she just jarred her neck and then one of these sternocleidomastoid went into spasm so it wasn't a true contracture it was just that because of a trauma the muscles went into spasm and within three or four days she was almost 100 percent again that's not what we're talking about when we're talking about congenital torticollis, which is true torticollis. So if you hear the term rye neck, that's what we're talking about, is torticollis. Okay, rye neck is the other name. Talk about the head becoming. Okay, good point. Yes, I forgot to mention that. So if I was always like this, so I'm a couple of days old, I'm a week old, I'm two weeks old, I'm four weeks old, I'm six weeks old, how's, my, how's the, the flattening of my head? 
So my head right here is always going to be flat. It's not going to be in the back. It's not going to be on the other side because I'm always like this. So eventually, don't forget that the cranium is doing a lot in the first year of life, right? So if I've always got pressure right here on the skull, can that change how the face and the skull is growing? It actually almost becomes like a perpendicular square kind of thing. It changes the angle. We call this plagiocephaly. This is really important. This is what you want to avoid because if by age six months, seven months, eight months, you've now got this deviation of the skull in the face, it is really hard to change that, right? Yes, uh, yes, if they get to kind of like the eight, nine, ten months, they would definitely use that. They usually don't like to use that really when the baby's still young because it will put different pressures on the skull. Again, they'll usually try and get, they'll say go see an osteopath for craniosacral work and they'll get a lot more aggressive with the therapy. But yes, you can eventually start using techniques like that. It's usually wait, yeah, they usually like to wait a little bit. Um, so this is gonna be plagiocephaly. So imagine that your sternocleidomastoid is gonna be contracted. You're always gonna have pressures on the one side of the head. So that means that now the skull and the face is gonna be changed. So it's supposed to be round. The baby, all babies' heads are flat at the back because they lay for the first three, four months, right? But ideally, hopefully, you'll be doing tummy time. You'll be taking some of the pressure off. Here, the pressure's always on an oblique angle, which now means that the head's gonna be an oblique angle. So if you hear the word plagiocephaly, cephalad means, and plagio is plagiarism, it's altering, right? So it's altering the shape of the skull which also alters the shape of the face. So we really don't want to get to that. That's not good. Okay, can we just do herbs and clumpkies and then we'll take a break? Okay. Herbs palsy. Okay, so you guys did neuroanatomy. So tell me about the brachial plexus. C5 to T1, yes, okay. So the brachial plexus is C5 to T1. Anything else you guys know? True. Tell me the five terminal branches of the brachial plexus. Okay, so I heard musculocutaneous. What are the branches? Oops. Musculo. Wait, what are the branches? Musculocutaneous is made up of what? Five to seven. C five to seven, okay. What else do we have? Axillary made up of what branches? C five, six. Then we have? Radial made up of? All of them. And then? Ulnar made up of? C eight to T one. And median made up of? All of them. Okay, so now that we know that, and there's a whole bunch of accessory ones, right? Long thoracic nerve, supraclavicular, blah, 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 blah. Okay, let's worry about the, the five major terminal branches. So, if I were to tell you that, let's say, an infant was born, and again, it was a traumatic birth, okay? So, 
there needed to be assistance to get the child out. They really don't like OBs nowadays, don't like to go in and help the child get out. They really like the female just to push. But let's just say it was a really difficult and it wasn't actually exiting. They'll usually either use forceps or a vacuum, and once they do that, they basically like clamp on and then they try and like wiggle the head out, right? Or they'll actually go in and again, they try and wiggle the head out. So the idea is that you push, pull on the head to try and get a shoulder to pop out, and then you pull out to try and get the shoulder out, and then everything just comes out. But what's happening here is when you're pulling on the head, what are you doing? Okay, so when you're stretching, when you're pulling on the head and trying to get the infant out, what are you tractioning? What part of the brachial plexus do you think you're injuring? The upper part. So C5 and 6 get tractioned, and that's known as an herb's palsy. That is when the shoulder and the ear separate. So could I get an herb's palsy if I was, I don't know, walking around and I fell, I don't know why you would fall like this, but let's just say, I fell and I went like that when I, was, when I fell. Okay, so she fell off a horse like that. So in that case, when I'm separating the ear and the shoulder, could I end up with an acquired herb's palsy? Could I traction C5 and C6? Okay, so now that we know herb's palsy is C5 and C6, now, would muscular cutaneous be affected? Okay, what does muscular cutaneous innervate? What is it? Biceps, Biceps yep. Cocobrachialis. And brachialis. So you are elbow flexors, right? And it also does skin the lateral form. Okay. Hence the musculo and the cutaneous part, right? What about axillary? What does it innervate? Terry's minor and deltoid. Okay. Okay, so part of radial would be affected, if you guys agree with that, but not a major part of it, two out of the five branches. Would any of ulnar be affected? No. What does ulnar innervate? Intrinsic hand. Intrinsic hand muscles, like what? No. What does this? Oh, the lumbricals. Uh, the lumbricals make an L. So they flex the metacarpophalangeal joint and extend the dips and pips. Right? Lumbricals make an L. So you never forget that. Pad and dab. Do you guys remember pad and dab? Yes? So your palmar interossei adduct. Your dorsal interossei abduct. So dab, dorsal interossei, pad, palmar interossei. Those are your intrinsic hand muscles, right? Hypothenar eminence, what makes up the hypothenar eminence? What is this one called? What is this pinky called? Digitiminimi. So flexor digitiminimi, abductor digitiminimi, opponens digitiminimi makes up the hypothenar eminence. 
We should know that because that gets affected when C8 and T1 get affected. Adductor pollicis is also going to be affected with the ulnar nerve, as well as flexor carpi ulnaris, right? Okay, and then half of flexor deuterum profundus, the two medial parts. So now that we know that, we know that that's not affected, and then some of median will be affected, right? But again, two out of five branches, so we're not super concerned. So with an herbs palsy, now that you know an herbs palsy is a separation of the ear to the shoulder, you are going to be tractioning C5 and C6. What do you expect to see? So axillary is totally screwed up, so I can't, I can't abduct or externally rotate. So how would I look? What position would my arm be in? It would be adducted and internally rotated. Now, some of radial is affected. So, in fact, what it looks like when you have herbs palsy, we call it a waiter's tip deformity. Because when you ask for a tip, you're like, right? I've never done that. Discreetly. Anyways, back in the old days, they used to do that. You guys are all too young for that. But so, a waiter's tip deformity, that is the classic presentation of someone that has an herbs palsy. You could probably use your neuroanatomy knowledge and break it all down, or you could just remember herbs palsy looks like this, and then you could figure out, okay, so the shoulder's adducted and internally rotated, the elbow is extended, the wrist is flexed, and the fingers are usually flexed. Okay? So that is usually caused by a traumatic birth. So right now we have two conditions caused by a traumatic birth. Torticollis and herbs palsy. Okay, now let's say, hold on, let's say now that the infant was not coming out well and the arms were actually pointed up, which is not good, right? What can sometimes happen is the <laughs> the, the OB will actually, the only part they can grab is going to be the hands if the hands are found above the child, which is not very common, but it can happen. So what they do is they pull on the infant's hand, okay? So what happens if I were to pull on your hand? If my hand was above and you were to pull on it, what would happen? I traction my axilla. Okay, so out of the brachial plexus, what is in the axilla? CAT1. So a clumpkey's paralysis affects the lower aspect of the brachial plexus, which primarily is going to affect the ulnar nerve. So that means my intrinsic hand muscles, flexor carpi ulnaris, half of flexor deuterum, the medial half of flexor deuterum profundus are all not working properly. So what does that look like? So if you were to look at someone's hand with a clumpkey's paralysis, what would you see? Okay, you would see claw hand, or we call it bishop's hand like this, but yes, you would see claw hand, 100%. Anything else that you would see? When you're looking at the hand, would you still have an atrophy where? Hypothenar eminence. So you would typically see that. And then if you asked for them to ulnar deviate, it would not be lost, but it would be minimized because extensor carpal nerus is usually still innervated by radial nerve. Okay, so usually there'll be weakness in ulnar deviation. So what does this present like? 
claw hand deformity or bishop's hand. Bishop's hand, you know, when they do the side of the cross, I don't know why they usually do that. Anyway, so they call it bishop's hand, yeah. So if by any chance, let's say I were to jump off of a building, I don't know, I'm feeling crazy today. I jumped off a building and I caught myself on a branch. <gasps> Could I have an acquired clumpkies? Let's just say that I have major trauma to the neck and shoulder. I don't know, major car accident, or could I affect the whole brachial plexus? So there is such a thing as a whole arm palsy, which basically means there would be limited range of motion and strength with everything in the whole entire arm. That's not very common. Herb's palsy, fairly common, especially after traumatic birth, and clumpkies is also not as common, but possible, okay? So you need to know what the etiology is, herbs, clumpkies, and then what the presentation is. Herbs, clumpkies. Cause, oftentimes is traumatic birth. So we're good with that. So these are palsies, these are neuropathies basically. It's a traction of a peripheral nerve. Any questions so far? Cool. All right, let's take a break. So can we come back at 10-2? 10-2 it is. And I will put the dates before I forget. I'm looking up Antero and what was it? Retro? Retro, yep, because, version. Because I think I have that. Okay. Not 100% because I haven't like, learned much about it, so I was just researching and stuff. So, because, um, well, my, my hips always hurt me, and I went and got x ray and Yep.
No, I got it. No, no, no. I just... Yeah, you guys 
So testing and diagnosis is really going to be important when we talk about blood tests. Okay, so for example, we're going to learn about systemic lupus erythematosus, which you should have already learned last semester. And for example, the anti-nuclear antibody is the blood work that you look for that. So you would put that in here. Okay? And then extra information could be like your epidemiology. So who gets muscular dystrophy? Males. Who gets Duchenne's? Right. Males. It's an X-linked disease, so you can put that in there. X-linked disease, progressive, genetic, um, primarily affects boys. Right? Okay, so I would strongly recommend my big questions are definitely going to be on the name of the disease, the etiology or risk factors, the manifestations, and then a little bit of what would you do? Is this something you can treat or is it not something that you can treat, right? Or what are some of the testing? What do the x-rays say? What does the blood work say? All right. Okay, so coming up, osteoporosis. What is osteoporosis? Decreased bone mass. So, does that mean just mineralization? No. It means the matrix and the mineralization is affected. Is this osteoporosis, is this something you are born with? No, it is acquired. Is this a genetic disease? No. no, it is acquired. I will ask those kinds of questions. Which of the following disease is acquired? Or which of the following diseases is genetic? This is an acquired disease. Okay, so who typically gets osteoporosis? Females. Give me more. Who else? Females. So menopausal or postmenopausal? Why? Decreased decrease estrogen. Calcium production. So decreased estrogen. Estrogen increases osteoblastic activity. Osteoblasts build bone. So if you have less estrogen, that means you have less osteoblastic activity, which means you're building less bone. So now your bone is starting to decrease. The thickness and the quality of the bone is starting to decrease. We build bone, we have more osteoclastic <coughs> activity than osteoclastic activity, usually until our 20s. Some people it can be into our 30s, but usually when we hit our 20s, it's a pure decline. So, after 20, your osteoclastic activity is a little bit more than your osteoblastic activity. So now imagine you're in your 50s. You have way more osteoclastic activity than you have osteoblastic activity. And then on, it's still recording. It recorded through the break. I don't stop it because then it's a disaster. Um, and then on top of that, you have estrogen. And estrogen even lowers osteoblastic activity even more. So, menopausal or postmenopausal women, who else? Well, give me other characteristics of these females. Um, women who carry more babies than other women? Um, or like possibly. Possibly, it's not a huge one, but possibly. Um, they're usually really small and built. So they're fragile 
or frail builds, that's important. So females, anything else? What was that? I can't hear you. <laughs> oh, that's gonna be one of the manifestations. Anything else? Definitely. Um, sedentary lifestyle would be a risk factor. It's not typically the epidemiological factor, but it is a risk factor, right? The less active you are, the less trauma or compression you have on the bone. And again, bone lays down bone along the lines of stress. So if you don't stress the bones, do they build bone? No. So sedentary lifestyle is definitely a risk factor. So the epidemiology is females, postmenopausal, Caucasian typically, and frail in stature, like frail, frail bodies. Um, so we know one of the risk factors is being sedentary. Anything else that could be a risk factor? What about your intake diet? So not enough phosphorus, not enough phosphate, not enough calcium, all of that can definitely be a major issue. So poor diet is another one. Or if you have a GI issue, what if you have Crohn's? What if you have um, ulcerative colitis? What if you have celiac disease? Couldn't any of those GI disorders prevent you from absorbing the nutrients you need, thereby creating osteoporosis? Definitely. Excessive caffeine also? It can. No. Medications are a big one. Thyroid? Thyroid dysfunctions can as well, yep. Um, okay, so now that we have an idea about that, why do we call this disease the silent thief? Yeah. Go for it. Uh, because it won't show up in a blood test. Okay. <coughs> um, so like if you need more calcium for your diet, it's going to pull it from the bones. It so does. When you, take, when you take that test, it's still going to appear normal because the right cal you're going to see the correct calcium levels. It's just pulling from the bank. Possibly. You're not wrong, but that's not why we call it Cyan Thief. Uh, most often, uh, people don't know they have osteoporosis until they fall and they break something, and that's how they realize They don't even have to fall. Oh, yeah. So, I may have told some of you guys this. 76-year-old female, super active. She's, like, on the Gananakwa trails, like, five times a week. She rides her bike. She does kayaking. She's Wonderful lady, super fit, way more fit than any of us. It's crazy. Okay, 76. So she came in to me and she said, my back's hurting. Okay, what happened? I don't know. It's been going on for a few months. Okay, is anything making it better? Well, if I lay down, it's a little bit better. But sometimes at night, it causes me sharp pain and I just, I can't sleep. Okay, so nothing's really making it better except for laying down, but it doesn't always work. No, okay. Any medications? No, I don't take medications. Okay, perfect. So I said, any health history issues? Yeah, so she says, I think I have osteoporosis. I'm not really sure. I think I remember my doctor saying that. Either that or I have, or I have uh, arthritis. So I'm like, okay, that's very, two very different things, but that's <laughs> fine. So treated her the first time, and she got some results. So she felt better for a couple of days, and then she called me. She's like, yeah, it's kind of back. So okay, let's do a different treatment. We'll add some new techniques and see if we can get some results. Again, only lasted a couple of days. So I did three treatments thinking, 
it should start to elongate the amount of time that she's pain free. It never did, it was only two or three days. So finally I said to her, I'm like, eh, something doesn't feel right to me. I want you to go back to your GP and get an X-ray. So she went back to her doctor and said, I wanna get an X-ray and the doctor said no. So she called me and she says, my doctor won't do an X-ray. Okay, brought her back in. I thought, okay, you know, we're gonna do something totally different. So we just did acupuncture. I thought maybe if I just throw something different into the mix, we'll see. Anyways, no difference. Couple of, couple of days of relief, no difference. So finally I wrote a letter to her doctor and I said, look, there's a chance that she has osteoporosis. You would have this in your notes. And if so, can you please do a thoracic spine X-ray because I'm thinking there may be a compression fracture. And then I told her, make sure when you go to the doctors, you tell them you want to rule out a compression fracture. Oh, you're gonna have to write that down for me. No problem, so I wrote it down. As soon as she went in, doctor didn't even look at my note. As soon as she said compression fracture, yep, we'll get you an x-ray right away. So, got the x-ray, compression fracture in the thoracic spine. So she did have osteoporosis. She just couldn't remember that's what it was. And in fact, knowing that she had a history of osteoporosis, the doctor really should have done an x-ray right away. But anyways. So she had a dowager's hump, which is basically um, almost like a, an acute angle in her thoracic spine. And it was because the anterior aspect of the vertebral body actually collapsed. So when the anterior aspect of the vertebral body collapses, you end up having an increased kyphosis. So a very fairly sharp angled increased kyphosis is classic for a compression fracture. And compression fractures occur most commonly in the thoracic spine. So we call this the silent thief because you don't know that your calcification and your bone matrix is being decreased until all of a sudden you cough, you lift, you twist. You do something that you do every day and all of a sudden you have significant pain from it because of a compression factor. Okay? So, two words we should know about. Dowager's hump. This is the acute angulation in the thoracic spine, so acute hyperkyphosis because of a compression fracture of a vertebrae, the anterior aspect of a vertebrae, okay? So that's a dowager's hump. Gower's sign, you guys probably read it in the notes. Gower's sign has to, happens with muscular dystrophy. So remember when I said muscular dystrophy, they have a hard time getting into position or changing positions? So how do they get up from the ground? They walk themselves up their legs. That's Gower's sign. You'll see people with acute SI joint dysfunctions that have really sharp pain that are stuck in this position. They're like, oh my God, I can't get up. And they'll use Gower's sign to get themselves up. But Gower's sign is classic in muscular dystrophy. So don't confuse those two words. Those are very different. Dowager's hump is a thoracic spine compression fracture because secondary to osteoporosis. Ms. Gower's sign is climbing up your pelvis because you don't have enough strength in the girdle, the pelvic girdle, to be able to get you upright. Okay. So, we call it the silent thief because you don't know that you have osteoporosis usually until there's a fracture and all of a sudden they take an x-ray and they're like, oh, look at that, you have osteoporosis. What do you, yeah. Sorry, with the compression fracture in the spine, is there anything that is done? And then would you have pain all These people are usually time? 60s, 70s, 80s. So you're really going to go in and do spinal surgery? Nope. Their bones are already brittle. Nope. And how severe is the pain? Are, are they dealing all the time? Um, she, 
I'll give you this patient's case. It was fairly consistent. Um, and she said that it was a dull ache. So she said some days it was a two, three, some days it was a six, seven. It depended on the day. But to do spinal surgery, to compact, take bone from somewhere else and compact it, I mean, the risks of that, especially when these individuals are older, they're already not very active. She is, but typically they're not. So the chance of recovering. Well, I mean, my mom also broke it, and she has that problem. Like, I've noticed that she has that problem, but she never complained to that. I don't know. Okay. But I mean, but it could just be. Is the hump at the CT or is it in the mid-thoracics? Yeah, okay. And she had an x-ray recently? If it's, I mean, if it's not bugging her, why radiate? But yeah, if there starts to be some pain, I would definitely say go get an x-ray. No, but it's good to know because me as a therapist, and that's what she said to me, she goes, well, what can we do to do, to, to do this, or to fix this? And I said, there's nothing you can do medications, so her doctor put her on stronger medications, um, bifispinax, uh, which will help decrease osteoclastic activity, because it is a progressive disease, right? So she's on stronger meds. And then for me, it's important for me to know, because the difference between arthritis and osteoporosis is very different, and that does impact my treatment. So now that I know that, and I know that she's had compression fractures, I have to be careful with my joint play and my mobilizations, right? So it is important to know. So rib fractures are actually quite common, so you want to be careful with your tapotment over any area that is osteoporotic. Really common in the thoracic, it is the most common in the thoracic spine. Um, is there like one bone that would become more, like, more osteoporosis? Like, like does the osteoporosis affect one bone more specific than other bones, or just Usually, usually it's the axial skeleton. So spine, ribs, most commonly can affect the pelvis as well, which usually can lead to hip fractures. Um, but spine and ribs loves it. It's more so in the axial skeleton. But it can be anywhere. So how does someone having osteoporosis, let's say they actually know, let's say they have had a bone scan, for example, or a DEXA scan, which is basically like an x-ray where they check to see how much density your bone has. So let's say now they have been diagnosed with osteoporosis. What do you do? As a therapist, what do you do? Okay, so you can do joint play or molds, but you might want to do a grade one or two, maybe pushing to a three, depending on how good you feel your communication is with your patient. Anything else? So you're going to educate them. What is the most important thing here? Diet and exercise. So in this case, is the best exercise going for a walk or going for a swim? Bone lays down bone along the lines of stress. So do I have more stress on bones when I'm walking or when I'm swimming? Walking. walking. Do I tell them to go for a run? Okay, 76 year old woman who probably has never ran before, come on but you wanna get them into weight-bearing activities. So for right now, if she's really out of shape and she has a hard time with walking because of the pain, for example, maybe put her on a bike, or maybe put her on an elliptical, and then work it up to walking. But you want it to be weight-bearing activity. Now, one of the great things here is, you want them to put on weight. 
the more weight they have, the more stress is on the bones. More stress on the bones, the more osteoblastic activity you're going to have. So in this case, you actually want these people to be obese. Okay, yeah, you're not really yeah. going to go there, but you know what I mean. <laughs> right? You're definitely not going to tell them to go on a diet, right? <laughs> you want them to increase their dietary intake to try and, because usually they are very, very, very frail, which means there isn't a lot of pressure on the bones. Well, my mom, she has lost, she had, really, had it really bad when she got diagnosed with it. So I don't know if it's because of where she was at and had to get her medication to help build up some strength. But they actually told her to stop using weights and to stick to the pool. But it could also be so, she was an earlier cycle. Well, even if you're taking medication, if depending on what grade you're at, when your DEXA scan comes back, for example, if you're at like the 90th percentile, then you have a high likelihood of a compression fracture. So in that case, you want to probably dial back anything that could cause a compression fracture, right? Um, but typically, you won't be that far gone. So she would probably have a fairly high DEXA scan then, yeah. Now let's talk a little bit about another word. What is the difference between osteopenia and osteoporosis? Totally a different thing. Totally a different thing. We're gonna talk about osteoarthritis when we talk about degenerative joint disease in like two weeks. Okay. That's gonna be with our, the arthritides. So what is osteopenia versus osteoporosis? So osteoporosis means you have decreased bone density. So it's mineralization and matrix. This means you're on your way to osteoporosis. So if someone comes into you or you're reading a report that says osteopenia or they're osteopenic, you're okay. It just means it's starting to become an issue. It's not yet an issue. So it is very unlikely that someone has a compression fracture because they have osteopenia. It's really uncommon. The good thing about knowing that you're osteopenic is that you can start taking supplements and engaging in activities to prevent osteoporosis from developing. <coughs> Once you have osteoporosis, at that point, you're really just trying to prevent further decay of the bone, right? You're really not going to be able to regain it to normal because we're older and we're on the decline. It's just the way it is, right? Okay, so that's really important. So, yeah, 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 bone mass peaks below, that's fine. Um, so we talked about menopause, we talked about sedentary lifestyle, calcium, so diet, poor nutrition, yeah. Females, most commonly, cigarette smoking and major depression. Cigarette smoking is pretty much a risk factor for everything, just throw it in there. Um, major depression, they do believe that the serotonin and dopamine, not only does it prevent you from wanting to move and get out of the house and do things, but also that prevents you from having proper intake of nutrients. So they do think that there's a GI, like a gut-brain connection, where the depression, possibly anxiety, but it hasn't been documented yet, can affect that. 
No, no, and they don't usually move or leave the house or, yeah. So, we talked about things that we can mention dietary issues. We're obviously not going to suggest medications, that's for their doctor to do. We are going to educate on not having a sedentary lifestyle and making sure that we have lots of nutrient intake and lots of caloric intake. And then for our treatments, we said that we're going to be careful with our joint plan molds. Is there anything else? Anything else you need to be careful with? So you're going to be probably cautious with your deponent. You can still do deponent, but you're going to want to be cautious with it. So ischemic compressions, you're going to want to probably be cautious with, for sure. Strengthening, you're going to want to be cautious and have a very slow progression because you don't want to cause a compression fracture if you build up their strength or if you build up their activity level too much. Anything else? What about pressure? What about like elbows, like right over the thoracic spine because the erectors are super hypertonic? Ribs are probably fairly fragile with osteoporosis, so we want to be a little bit careful, especially over the ribs. Thoracic spine, we're not as concerned about because the bones are a lot thicker, like the cortical bones are a lot thicker in the vertebrae, but when we come to ribs, it's pretty thin, so be very careful over the ribs. Please note, hint, hint, the best way to diagnose not for us, but for the medical professionals, is a DEXA scan. That's going to give us an indication of the density of the bone. And I usually do it at the hip, not important for us. But we should know how this gets diagnosed. X-rays you can see it on. Um, DEXA scans are the ultimate kind of gold standard. Uh, bone scans are also an option as well. But we should definitely know about DEXA scans. Yeah, hint, hint. So when we talk about the dowager's hump, so if you have an increased thoracic curvature and it's very acute right here, there's a very sharp angulation, that would be known as a dowager's hump. Chances are it's caused by a compression, compression fracture. fracture. What is another name for a compression fracture caused by osteoporosis? So it fractured and it really shouldn't have because you did something normal. What would we call it? Oh no, but good thought. So pathological fractures. If we use the term pathological fracture, it means the bone's fractured because there's some kind of pathology. Is it normal for me to cough and have a rib fracture or have a compression fracture in the thoracic spine? Not normal. So the fracture was secondary to a pathology. So we, we call the compression fractures in the thoracic spine pathological fractures because they're secondary to osteoporosis. If they didn't have osteoporosis, it wouldn't happen. Okay. So we already talked about that, how we would treat that differently. Osteomalacia. Okay, so osteoporosis is acquired. Okay. So osteomalacia. Has anybody here heard of rickets? Okay, so osteomalacia is the same as rickets. If you say osteomalacia, it means it's happening in an adult or it's being diagnosed in an adult. If you say rickets, 
It means it's happening or being diagnosed in children. But it's the exact same thing. Okay? So that would be a good question. What is the infant form of osteomalacia? Or in who would you find osteomalacia? Or in who would you find rickets? Okay, so this is an issue of mineralization. So your bone matrix is fine. Okay, so the cartilage matrix for your bone is fine. But it's the amount of calcium, magnesium, and phosphorus that's on there to make it hard that that's a problem. So if you don't have calcification or hardening of the bone, what is going to happen to the bone? It's going to bend. It's going to bow. So especially in weight-bearing bones, you will see that these bones will bow because they're still elastic-like. They have an okay matrix, but they don't have their solidification. They don't have their hardening component. Okay, so that's really common. When a bone bows, where is the major stress on the bone? Like if there was a fracture, where do you think it would be? Would it be in here or would it be in here? So if the bone's going out, are these kind of compressing or are these compressing? The medial side is compressing. So it's not uncommon when there's an x-ray taken that you can see little linear compressions, compression fractures or fractures on the medial side or the concave side of the bowed bone. So that's another thing on x-ray that you can sometimes see with osteomalacia. Okay, so bone matrix is normal. This is a calcification issue. So is this different than osteoporosis? Yes. Yes, because in osteoporosis, your bone matrix and your mineralization was a problem. Here, your bone matrix is okay, just your mineralization is a problem. So. How can you fix your mineralization being a problem? More minerals. Okay, so if you have conditions like parathyroidism, which can absorb or take away calcium from the bone, you wanna treat that. What if your kidneys aren't working properly and you're peeing out more calcium or phosphorus or magnesium? You fix the kidneys, okay? So if you know what the cause is, if there's a GI dysfunction, for example, again, celiacs, for example, or ulcerative colitis or Crohn's, and you're not absorbing these, then it can lead to osteomalacia or rickets. So dietary issues can definitely cause it. So being malnourished is a big one. Now, we mentioned SLE. We have not yet talked about SLE. We should talk about it. Systemic lupus erythematosus, which you are supposed to know about, yes which I'm going to tell you basically, the, I'm going to do like a quick five minutes and it's what you need to know about SLE. So, systemic tells you, okay, it's a fall, it, it can affect multiple systems. So, it can just affect your joints. Or, it could just affect your skin. Or, it could just affect your kidneys. Or, it could just affect your heart. Or it could just affect your lungs. Can you get the idea, right? Or this could affect your skin and your joints. Or it could affect your heart and your GI. So the thing is, this is hard to diagnose because it's systemic. 
It could only be one system, and you might think it's a heart issue when it's actually not. It's systemic lupus erythematosus. Okay, so number one, we need to know about that. The lupus component. Lupus means lu, which means wolf. What does a wolf look like? Okay, other than... <laughs> These people are not hairy. So usually wolves have discoloration around the eyes. Right? The fur changes color around the eyes. That's why they're called lupus. Because they usually have a discoloration or a rash, they'll say, around the eyes. Okay? So this will usually affect the integumentary system. Erythematosis. Erythemia means redness, right? What do you do when you massage? You get hyperemia, right? Redness. So erythematosis means redness, condition of. So condition of redness around the eyes, like a wolf, that can also be systemic. So if you can break down most of the conditions, you start to learn a little bit about them. Okay, so who gets this? More common in women. Is it possible that a male gets this? Yes, but it is more common in females. Females usually between the age of 40 to 20 to 40. In some textbooks, you'll see 35, 15 to 35. It's usually childbearing age, okay? Now, if this affects the musculoskeletal system, meaning joints are affected, does it break down the joints? No. So here's the thing. I tell you my hands hurt. So you tell me to go get an x-ray. So I get an x-ray, x-ray comes back completely negative. Could it be SLE? <clears throat> yep. It doesn't, it doesn't destroy the joints, which means I don't see it on x-ray. I don't see it on MRI. I don't see it on CT. Now, what if it doesn't affect the musculoskeletal system at all? Maybe it's my heart. So you send me, so I go back to my GP. GP sends me to a cardiologist. Cardiologist says, nope, can't find anything wrong with your heart. It's coming, it's coming. But it's hard to diagnose <coughs> because it's not always very clear. But there are some, there's something coming. Okay, so other than this, what else do we need to know? Um, females, 20, 40, no joint destruction. We know about the skin, we know about the rash. We should write down there's usually a rash and it's oftentimes in the face. Um, okay, ANA. ANA stands for anti-nuclear antibody. Don't ask me why, because I don't know why. It's just like HLA-B27 we find in people who have ankylosing spondylitis. RF factor we find in people that have rheumatoid arthritis. Why? I don't know. But it's the elevated proteins that are found in the blood. So when someone has systemic lupus erythematosus, if you did a blood test and you looked for the specific marker of ANA, you have to look for it. Like when you go in for a general checkup and they do a CBC, which is a complete blood count, that's a white blood cell count, a red blood cell count, and then they do your thyroid and your sugars, they're not looking for ANA. So it has to be a specific blood test that they're going to look for. 
So for by chance, if they have no idea what's going on with you, hopefully they'll eventually refer you to a rheumatologist. And the rheumatologist should come up with doing a test, a blood test, which is a very simple test, to look for the antinuclear antibody. If your ANA levels are elevated, it does not necessarily mean you have systemic lupus erythematosus, but it means you're likely to have systemic lupus erythematosus. So now, I have elevated ANA, I have clear x-rays, and I have some systemic issues going on. So I would have ruled out rheumatoid arthritis because there's no joint destruction. I would have ruled out ankylosing spondylitis because it's maybe not happening in the spine. I would have ruled out all the other conditions. And now that I've ruled all of those other conditions out and I have high ANA and I don't have positive x-rays and I do have some systemic issues, now I say it's probably systemic lupus erythematosus. It's not completely a diagnosis of exclusion, but it's almost a diagnosis of exclusion. You basically have to rule everything else out to figure out that it's that. Does that make sense? Okay. So we definitely need to know about that. So now, why, does it, why do you possibly have a risk factor of having systemic lupus erythematosus that could increase your risk for osteomalacia? These people already have rashes. So how likely are they to be going out into the sun? Their skin's already irritated. Not likely. So if I don't go out to the sun, do I have a lot of vitamin D production? If I don't, ha if I don't have vitamin D, do I absorb calcium? How do I mineralize my bones? So in addition to diet, there can be other issues that can cause someone to be osteo, to have osteomalacia. People who are in long-term care facilities who never go outside and who don't eat, for example, because they're 70 years old, could they develop osteomalacia? 100%, okay? So there's lots of different reasons why. Oh, medications is another big one. Medications have risk factors for almost everything. They're sometimes necessary. Okay, so diffuse generalized ache. Who here has had a diffuse ache? I just, I don't know, everything's achy. What do you think when everything's achy? I'm getting the flu. You're getting mad? Okay. <laughs> Haven't had that, but yeah, generally you're like, oh, I, I might be coming down with something. Okay, so vague, right? Fatigue, don't feel like eating. Who's had that? Sounds like the flu. Might be coming down with something. Okay. My bone pain, or I touch my bones and they're a little bit tender. Could be a risk factor for cancer. Could just be us getting the flu. But if you look at all of these manifestations, does anything scream out demineralization? That can, but could it be functional? Could it be I sit all the time and I'm always sitting and I'm always mousing to the right-hand side? So really when you look at this, there's nothing that screams out calcium issues or mineralization issues. So we're going to talk about at the end of the semester electrolyte imbalances. When you get symptoms, multiple symptoms, don't really make sense. Or it's kind of like flu-like or cold-like symptoms, but it's been going on for weeks or months. Please send them to go get their electrolytes checked. Electrolytes are almost never checked. GPs don't really like to do it because we live in North America and what are the chances of you having an electrolyte disorder? Not very good. Third world countries, it would be very high, but here, not very good. So they don't typically test for it unless they've tested for everything else and they don't know what else to test for, then they'll test for that. But you, 
No, you actually still, the processed food doesn't prevent you from intaking it, but it also increases your risk for other things like gastrointestinal cancers and things like that. But yeah, it doesn't prevent you from absorbing nutrients. So when you get weird, vague symptoms, you always want to rule out cancer. 100% you want to rule out cancer. But the other thing you want to rule out is electrolyte imbalances. And when you did that, if you did check for phosphorus, check for magnesium, check for calcium, you'll see it in your blood test. Okay, so that's pretty easy, but it, it's something you have to ask for. Okay, do you guys have questions? Yeah, we're just talking. About? The, the Did you have a question? No. Okay. Okay. All right, so the neuropathy here, it would have to be really far gone, right? Before your nerves start getting affected, I mean, your bones would be really, really bold. So it would have to be pretty severe. So is this something you're going <coughs> to treat? Is this something you're going to fix? Nope. We can educate people about how we can make it better once we know that that's the diagnosis, but really we're doing a referral out. So medications, again, just as if they were medicated for osteoporosis, it's going to be the same types of medications. You're going to try and decrease the osteoclastic activity. Should you recommend exercises? You want to be careful with your weight-bearing exercises, though, right? I would definitely agree. Isometrics would be great. And even non-weight-bearing isotonics would be wonderful, um, or active-assisted type exercises. You can even do some like swimming, and you can do some biking. But the thing that you want to be careful of is if they do have osteomalation, you're asking them to do weight-bearing exercises, you know that there's going to be some fractures that are going to happen in the concave area. So having significant weight-bearing activities <coughs> I would stay away from. Give them other exercises that will still strengthen in the meantime while they're taking their medications or increasing their diet to minimize the issues. All right, talked about that a little bit. Osteogenesis imperfecta. Okay, so rickets in osteomalacia is acquired. It's not genetic. Osteogenesis imperfecta is inherited, it's genetic, okay? So, let's break down this word. Osteo, bone, genesis, making, imperfecta, not perfect. So the bone that's being created is not perfect. That's what you need to know about the disease, okay? So, what's happening here? Look at the nice, normal compact bone and periosteum and diathesis and all the calcium and phosphorus and magnesium that's been deposited on it at the top. Wonderful, right? Nice and strong. Now, let's look at the brittle bone, which is what they call it. So what's happening to the mineralization here? There's not as much mineralization. And it happens more commonly in the diathesis. So you're born with this, okay? This is an inherited disease, that you're born with this genetic issue. So is it possible that in utero, you could be breaking bones? Yes. Even just slight movements. If this is a very severe case. Labor's a big one. What about when the baby starts to move their arms? Could they cause fractures? So here you have an infant that, or a child that comes in and tells you that their arms and their legs are hurting and there's no bruises. And then you later find out that there's 
that there's evidence of five previous fractures and that they have two new fractures, what's the first thing you think of? Abuse. It is the first thing you think of. So be cautious, because it's not super common in North America, osteogenesis and perfecta, but this is classic of them having fractures at doing menial or normal tasks. They could lift up a newspaper and fracture their humerus. They can stand and fracture their calcaneus and their femur. Um, so this is a connective tissue disease. Oh. Give me one sec. So the problem with this, the genetic issue, is that your connective tissue is not being created. So bones are connective tissue, ligaments are connective tissue, fascia is connective tissue, skin is connective tissue. So the big ones that we tend to notice is the bones, but they can very well have brittle skin. And the other thing these people typically have is blue sclera. The white of your eyes is oftentimes blue. They become blue because it's made of connective tissue. And the connective tissue, because there's a problem with the connective tissue, it actually is not created properly and it gives it a blue hue. So that is one thing you want to look at. What about your teeth? Is that connective tissue? So these kids oftentimes will have teeth issues. The teeth will start to degrade or they'll easily fracture. Hearing in your ears. What about your eardrum? Connective tissue, semicircular canals, all connective tissue. So they're hearing, oftentimes by the age of 30, they've got some kind of hearing issue, or at least 50% of them do anyways. So this is not just a disease of bones. This is a connective tissue disease. It's just we talk mostly about the bones because it is the easiest thing to be able to see in a manifestation. Question. Yeah, um, there's actually a little girl at the school and she was put, when she started at our school, she was put in like a higher grade, so not in junior kindergarten, she was put with a senior kindergarten because the senior kindergarten kids would be more careful with her. Right. Um, the parents sent home a letter, um, basically introducing her and telling everybody her story and like what she goes through. And so, like, I wanna cry. Yeah. It's so sad, she's like the cutest little thing. But um, she, like, it's crazy. Like, so in the letter it says like, you know, loud noises will bother, like, will bother me all kinds of stuff and at recess she'll stay in and like there'll be like um volunteer kids that will stay in with her to play right. but they have to be really careful with her and mm -hmm. she can literally be standing and like at her dresser and then she'll just break her bone mm -hmm. and she has little braces that she walks on yeah and, um, and the little wheelchair thing yeah get dressing you through. could fracture your child dressing yeah. they're so wobbly getting at that time yeah it's yeah. super oh crazy God. so like when my daughter had her birthday party we were going to go to like a like Amory won't be able to go to the right. place. And she's like, I really wanted her to come. So they went to like a color, like they did art instead yes. of art place because of her. But it's so sad. Like, yeah. it's like it's crazy. Osteogenesis and perfecta. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Fine, yes. Yeah. yeah, it's genetic, but it doesn't affect everybody, right? Mm -hmm. You don't necessarily, first of all, you can have the gene and not express it. Um, but typically, if you have the gene, you're expressing it. But you have 25% chance of having it if, you, if there's a parent that has it. So we want to know that is a mutation in collagen tissue, okay? We just talk a lot about the bones. But any connected tissue can be affected. That's really important. 
So the different types, I'm not too concerned so much about the different types. Type number two is the most severe. These kids may not make it through their first year of life. So again, like if you've got the really, really severe case, it can cause death. Um, but typically, the first type is the easiest one to um, deal with. You'll usually have 12 to 20 fractures by the time you hit kind of late childhood to early adolescence. So that is the most common type. Um, and again, it's usually diagnosed because you have multiple fractures. What are they going to do? How to, how to like wrap it or whatever, and they don't even go to hospital, and the cast would actually make it worse because it's heavy. So the weight, yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so just remember, there's definitely going to be bone deformities, okay? There's the blue sclera. That's the big difference. No other condition that we've learned about so far has the blue sclera. No other condition will have really, really thin and brittle skin. Right? No other condition is also going to have fractures along with the muscle wasting or the muscle weakness. So definitely know about that. Your height's going to be affected, weight, um, sorry, height and teeth and hearing. Those are the three you want to remember. Teeth, hearing, and your height. Right. Multiple fractures. From menial tasks. Okay. All right. So we talked about that, we talked about that. Okay, so hypermobility of the joints and the ligaments. So again, ligaments are made of connective tissue. So here you have someone that fractures easily, muscle wasting and muscle weakness, skin is thin, and joints are hypermobile because the ligaments are not fully formed. The connective tissue is not great. What do you do for this person? Do you do not treat and do you just refer out? What do you do? Would anybody treat? Would anybody else treat? Really? When I graduated, no one. But you know as much as you're going to know about it. You don't have to. I mean, you can always decide not to treat and you make it, it's your issue, right? I don't know enough about this condition and I'm afraid that I may do more damage so I'm gonna refer you to someone who may know more about it, whatever, that's fine. Or you can always say, let me go educate myself about your condition and maybe come back next week, however you wanna address it. Let's just say you were comfortable with it, what would you do? Would isometric be such, like, a small enough movement that could cause? Possibly, depends on the person, how severe is the case. Oh, you can definitely do manual lymph drainage. You can definitely do epilage. Obviously, yeah. you're going to go gentle to maybe gentle, moderate, maybe, right? Anything else you want to do? Sure, you can do vibration. Is that? DDBs, for sure. Anything else? Yeah, progressive relaxation techniques, for sure. Does anybody want to do passive range of motion? They're already hypermobile. You guys just joint play mobs. They're already hypermobile. Anything else you want to do? Isometrics. Yeah, you can do some isometrics. And the most important thing here is to communicate with your patient because anything you do could cause a fracture. That's the reality of it. 
So as long as you're communicating with the patient and as soon as they have pain or as soon as they're starting to feel discomfort, you back off. And of course, you use lots and lots and lots of lotion or oil, right? You don't want there to be dragged. So would you do fascia work? I probably would not do fascia work because you could actually cause the skin to tear because the skin is quite brittle. So there's going to, your job is again going to be to try and keep these people as mobile and as strong as possible, as healthy, tissue health as possible. But there's a lot of precautions you need to take, right? But for people like this, you obviously, would they get trigger points if their muscles aren't working properly? They would still get trigger points because are they still holding themselves upright? They're weak, so they are still going to have these things. Now, so would I do an ischemic compression for this patient? But could I do it by doing some gentle stripping? Or stretching. Again, stretching, you want to be careful because they're already hypermobile, so am I really going to get that tissue stretch? And am I stretching too much where I'm creating more hypermobility? So just be a little bit cautious with that. It's not an easy case to take on, but if nobody helps them, they get no therapeutic benefit whatsoever, right? I would, I would still use hydro on them, but with like the less time. Like yeah, and I maybe might not use hot or ice. I might use warm and cool for sure. Yep, for sure. So this is, I've never had a patient with osteogenesis imperfecta as of yet, but it may come your way, so just be aware of it. So yes, you can treat it, but of course we're just doing palliative treatment essentially. We're trying to keep them as active and as mobile as possible. There is no cure. So the disease may not necessarily progress the way muscular dystrophy would progress or spinal muscular atrophy, but you will continue, I mean, the bones don't get better, so you will continue to have fractures throughout your life, right? No, your statue's gonna be smaller. Your statue, but think about it, you're having fractures in the diaphysis. So the bones are just not gonna lengthen like they should. Okay, so everybody's good with osteogenesis infecta? Again, you're not gonna cure it. It is a disease that's, yeah. So the bones will heal, um, but there will be, there could be some connective tissue like ligaments and joint capsule. They could have scar tissue. Again, scar tissue is connective tissue and it would also be very mm, not well formed. So even though we know scar tissue is hazardous, it does have some strength to it. In this regard, it would actually be white loosey-goosey. So yes, you like your skin, you could end up with scarring of your skin, but it would still be really fragile. Okay. It wouldn't be like a typical scar where you could do a lot of work would on it. Would scar tissue be um, like more fragile than their regular connective tissue? Only because it's hazardous. Okay. Just like our, it would be no different than ours, our scar tissue compared to our like skin, for example. Yeah. So lots of things to take into consideration with regards to osteogenesis infective for treatment-wise. The genetic disorder where the bones are weaker, causing them to be more susceptible to fracture, it's often known as brittle bone disease. So osteogenesis infective is a spectrum of disorders. It can be quite mild, 
and not really cause any major problems at all. But for other patients, it can be more severe, causing them to have multiple fractures, and this can end up affecting their mobility. And for some people, they may even need to use a wheelchair. My OI affects me on an everyday basis. I've had to have my spine fused. There's a lot of like, secondary issues as well. Do you need a lot more pain relief than many other people do? And it also affects my hearing. My arms are quite brittle compared to my legs because I have metal rods, which means I have to use a wheelchair constantly. Things make us like often more tired. You might be seen as just being a bit lazy. It affects me kind of mentally because I don't know if I should blame my condition. But oh, I doesn't stop at borders. It could be great if you're in Denmark. It could be great if you're in the UK. Because you know you can have an opportunity to be treated. In Norway you will get everything very good. If you're in a wheelchair you will get modified cars and everything. The services for children have been very well developed in this country. So see the spectrum. That guy, did it look like he had any major bone issues? Meanwhile, you take a look at some of the people before. His wheelchair. Significant difference. So there's a wide range of variations in the disease. Because I don't know if I should blame my condition, but I doesn't stop at borders. It could be great if you're in Denmark. It could be great if you're in the UK. Because you know you can have an opportunity to be treated. In Norway you will get everything very good. If you're in a wheelchair you will get modified cars and everything. The services for children have been very well developed in this country but we need to improve the care for them as they become adults and for the rest of their life. Something has gone much slower than other things. And it's from different from countries to countries. The health system in the UK really good I think. In many ways, in some ways not. Not all doctors know about why. It's really annoying sometimes that some doctors don't listen. Even though something might happen to one kind of person in a way, it might be different for me and they, they can't treat us all the same. It can be really hard to explain to people how it affects you when it's not instantly visible. So you probably get not, not good treatment, I'm afraid. I have to go to the specialist centre if I want. Get care. BBS are working closer with the OIFE to help improve prospects, but we still need to raise awareness across the board. All borders. And that's what we're trying to teach you right now. And this isn't just limited to the more obvious forms. We need to include the more invisible, milder forms too. Yeah, I have a wheelchair and I have help or pain sometimes. Yeah, this sucks, but yeah, I'm having a good life. It's not because my life sucks. For me particularly, being in a wheelchair doesn't mean I can't do things, I can still drive, I can still live independently. It's like any... So I just wanted you guys to get the idea of the variations. Okay, Paget's disease. Another acquired disease. Well, it's genetic, but you get it when you're older. Sorry, I shouldn't say it's acquired. It's a genetic disease, but it develops when you're older. So, we said so far... What do we have for acquired diseases that we talked about today? Osteoporosis for sure. Osteomalacia is going to be... Acquired. And what's the other term for kids? Anything else? Torticollis, for sure. Herbs. Oops. Herbs and clumpkies, for sure. Yeah. 
don't know, did we do anything else today? Okay, so genetic. Osteogenesis imperfecta, for sure. Spinal muscular atrophy, for sure. Developmental dysplasia of the hip. Is that genetic or is it acquired in utero? Anything else? Muscular dystrophy. Do we do anything else today? And then we can add pageants. Yeah, osteogenesis imperfecta, we talked about that. I think that's it, that's all we talked about, right? Yeah, okay, voila. So, Paget's, okay. So, if you looked at Paget's, what would you think if you just looked at this picture? What disease would you think if you just looked at that picture without it saying Paget's at the top? Uh, could be osteomalacia, yeah? So, what was the disease, what, what was happening with osteomalacia? Right, decreased mineralization of bones. The bones were soft. That's the term we would use, right? Soft bones. With Paget's disease, what ends up happening is your osteoblastic activity is not occurring properly. It's, it's occurring, but you're not building bone properly. Okay, so you're making bad bone and you still have increased osteoclastic activity. So you're making bad bone and you're breaking it down. And then you're making bad bone and you're breaking it down. And you're making bad bone and you're breaking it down. So, eventually, what's the, bone, what's the body gonna say? Okay, I need to make this bone thicker I need to make the compact, the outside part of this bone thicker, because otherwise, how am I going to weight bear on this bone? How am I going to have muscle pull on this bone? So the body will actually start to thicken bones over time. This takes years and years and years of the bad osteoblastic and the osteoclast. Bad osteoblastic, osteoclast. It takes years and years and years and years and years, and eventually the bones are just going to start to grow thicker. They're going to go bigger because they have to do something for the bones to be stronger so that they're not constantly pathological fractures all over the place, right? So now that your bones are thicker, what does that mean for your blood? Well, if you have, bone is a live tissue, right? That is vascularized. So if you have more bone, that means you need more blood. So, where are you going to take the blood from? Well, the bone marrow okay, is going to have to produce more, so you can end up having bone pain with that. But is the brain going to get as much blood? Is the heart going to get as much blood? Are the kidneys going to get as much blood? So over time, you can start to see in the long run. Like this, usually this doesn't get diagnosed until people are 50, 60, 70. That's how long it takes for the bad bone, the bad osteoblast, and then the osteoclastic activity to develop enough and then for your bone to 
become bigger, right, for that compact bone to grow and become thick enough, and then to require more blood supply, it takes 50, 60, 70 years before you start to have symptoms. Okay, so it takes a long time. So, this, this happened in Grey's Anatomy? Yeah, they did an episode on it. Oh. It was like bilateral though. Oh, and, and it can be. So it's usually a systemic issue, right? It usually affects most bones. Now, would you notice by chance if, I don't know, if your femurs got a little bit thicker? Because usually we, our pants are stretchy or they're a little bit big. Would you necessarily notice if your like, brachiums and radius and ulna got thicker? Like, things are usually stretchy, right? Like, but what is the one area that you would wear something that would be a just fit? What do wear are stretchy? I think most people's underwear are fairly stretchy. Oh, shoes, hats. Okay, not, 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 but ball caps, for example. If he always wore his ball cap at the third hole, and all of a sudden, now he's in his 50s and 60s, and he's making it bigger. He's making it bigger. Or fitted hats, right? Because they fit just perfectly and they're not stretchy. So all of a sudden now you can't get your hat on. That's usually one of the first symptoms of Paget's. People will say, I don't understand. How can I get my hat on? I'm feeling really malaise and fatigue. I don't feel good. So eventually you go to the doctors, they'll take some x-rays and whoop, you have Paget's. And this has been going on for years and years and years and years and years. Okay, yeah. So people, like their muscle development, how is that? Because when I think of that, I think about someone taking steroids. Well, steroids can create osteopenia, but this, this, is, this is a skeletal issue. It's not necessarily a muscular issue. It does, There's yes. Megaly, yes, the bones do grow bigger, yes, and that's the growth plates are closed or whatever. Yeah, yeah. So in this case, most of I believe what you guys would have learned with regards to that, you would have had the symptoms usually in your 20s and 30s, maybe going into your 40s. This usually doesn't start to affect you until you're elderly. Like it takes so many years for this to develop. Okay, so things that we need to know. And there's another name, osteitis deformans, which if you, if that other name ever came across, you could figure it out. Osteo, bone inflammation of, and then deformance, it's deforming. They're getting bigger, right? So it's a metabolic disease. It is inherited. So it is another genetic disease. You want to remember that. So it usually happens, so it usually happens in the pelvis, skull, spine, and legs. Can it happen anywhere? It can happen anywhere, but it is more common in those areas. And like I said, usually the first time you recognize it is usually in the skull. 
So we don't really understand what the cause is. So if I, would I ask you the epidemiology here? No. Doesn't make sense because we don't really know what it is. Maybe it's viral, maybe it's genetic. We're not really 100% sure. But we do know what happens in older, it gets diagnosed in older individuals. It's happening your whole entire life. Okay, so bone pain, vague diffuse pain. Anybody concerned about that? Yes. Maybe, maybe it could be a sign of cancer. But what if there's no cancer? Is that a symptom that makes you run to the doctors? No. no. Night pain. Could be a sign of cancer. Most people, they're like, yeah, I'm, I don't know, I get some pain at night, wakes me up, then I fall back asleep. Do most people run to the doctors? And usually this is going on for years and years and years and years and years. It's not until they notice something significant, right, that it gets them to go. So they may notice some fatigue, some weakness, loss of appetite. Again, those are rarely insignificant symptoms. Yes, it could be a sign of cancer. Yes, it could be a sign of the flu. But does it scream out pageants? No. So again, hard to diagnose and hard to get people diagnosed because none of these symptoms are really classic or clear. So eventually there's going to be mental deterioration. There's also going to be kidney deterioration. There can also be liver deterioration. And that's all because of the blood flow. The excessive blood flow that the bone requires means the brain's getting less, the kidney's getting less, the liver's getting less. So eventually those joints or those systems will fail. Okay, so that's important. Why are they getting less of the blood volume? The bones require more blood volume. So you can't make enough. When you're 70, you're in the decline. Yes, your red bone marrow is making it, but is it making enough to compensate for the amount of bones that are increased, it can't. So it ends up taking it from other systems. That's usually what ends up killing. It's not the bone issue that kills people in pageants. It's usually the secondary issue of the vascular issue. No. You're not making enough. Not, not at that age anyways. So medications, the same medications you would take for people with osteoporosis, it's the exact same medications, right? You want to decrease the osteoclastic activity to try and at least maintain some of the bone there. But towards the end, it's not really going to make much of a difference. They will do surgery, and they only do surgery if, for example, your intervertebral foramen are compressing nerves. Or if you're, you have spinal stenosis, right, because of vertebral foramen are compressing the nerves. So that's really the only time they do surgery for these individuals. For physical activity, do you want these individuals to do really hardcore weight-bearing activities? No. no. Probably not, because the bones that are being formed are crappy, right? It's not good bones. So they are likely to have injury, right? Bone injuries like pathological fractures and things like that. So what would you suggest for these individuals? So swimming would be good. Maybe biking would be good. Anything else? Do you want them to do a lot of cardio? So you want to be a little bit careful with how much endurance activity you're giving these individuals because already the heart is working so hard with the minimal blood supply. So you want to do things in short periods or short stints and you're going to want to educate the patient about that. With your massage, how would you m modify your massage? As if someone has high blood pressure, so maybe short strokes, maybe not super deep. 
you may want to have them a little bit elevated, right? So there is going to be modifications you need to do for this patient. Even though they don't have cardiovascular issues, they essentially do because of the secondary, because of the bones making a secondary issue. Okay. Oh, is it time? Oh, yeah. Why didn't you guys say something? Okay, that's pageants. Done. Tell me. I just keep going. <laughs> <laughs> Whew, let me stop this. Damn.